provide... Because of the obvious threat to untold numbers of citizens, and because of the crisis which is even now developing, this radio station will remain on the air, day and night. This station and hundreds of other radio and TV stations throughout this part of the country are pooling their resources through an emergency network hookup to keep you informed of all developments. Hi, and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, a bi-weekly show that is released every other Friday. This is episode three. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and we're excited to bring you this episode. Episode three is actually our first hodgepodge or Frankensteinian episode, and I think Frankensteinian is the best name because I looked up that word on Merriam-Webster, because I'm a big nerd, and it said, a monstrous creation, especially a work that ruins its creator's life. (laughs) And that's pretty close to what horror podcasting has done for me. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But in this episode, you guys, we got Wolfman Josh, we got Dr. Shock, and I, we recorded these various segments. They're recorded at different times individually sometimes we teamed up and i think this has more than 30 mini reviews of horror movies for you between the three of us and josh is going to give you some thanksgiving horror since this is essentially our thanksgiving episode and then we bring you two um what i like to call concept discussions and those include when monsters don't look like monsters and then another discussion where we explore why there was only one freaking horror movie released in theaters during Halloween. (laughs) Such a travesty. And we've got some great listener feedback, so enjoy this special Thanksgiving episode of Horror Movie Podcast. This holiday season, prepare to have the stuffing scared out of you. Thanksgiving. Plymouth, Massachusetts, the fourth Thursday in November, is the most celebrated day of the year. The table is set. The festivities have begun. What an uninvited guest has arrived. And this year, there will be no leftovers. Okay, well, we want to take this time to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. This is essentially our Thanksgiving episode, and at this point, I'm joined with Wolfman Josh Legary. So, welcome, Josh. Oh! <laughs> all right, Josh. Sure, I'll grow out of that eventually. But... No, I love it. I, I think you should do it. <laughs> Every time we, like, address you, you should howl first and then start talking. <laughs> it's funny. I was... Uh... I was with my kids last night and it looked like, I don't know if it was actually a full moon, but it was a pretty full moon and the, you know, the dark clouds were blowing by it and there were these dark mountains up behind it and both of my kids just start howling at the moon. And so I guess I've taught them well, but it was kind of funny. (laughs) Well, you should tell the listeners actually, tell them how you ended up becoming Wolfman, Josh, because I kind of like that story myself. I don't actually know what you're referring to, but I mean, do you mean the fact that I, just my own obsession with werewolves? Well, there's that. And also even your physical appearance, you had a nickname, I think in high school <laughs> because of your last name. Oh, like Harry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like this hairy beast of a man, right? Yeah, so- that's true. That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of my friends 
jokingly, my last name is Legary, and one of my jo- my friends jokingly called me Leg Harry in high school. But <laughs> but the real truth behind, I mean, I've been obsessed with werewolves ever since I was a little kid and vampires. But um, my family on my grandmother's side, uh, my white side of my family is uh, are the Talbots, um, which is where the werewolf legend descends from. Right, the Wolfman movie. Nice. Uh, the family's the Talbots, so I actually kind of grew up thinking I was, <laughs> and hoping and praying I would be turned into a werewolf someday when I hit puberty, like Teen Wolf. But <laughs> you are so legit. I'm. I have nothing you. to declare at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, in all seriousness. I really think that at some point, Josh, and you're the man to lead this charge, we should address the werewolf cinema. And I mean, like, all of it. Oh, I'm down. I mean, unfortunately, there's just not that much good stuff out there. I'm I'm sad to say. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, and really, there's not a ton of werewolf movies. I mean, there are are a few. But, I mean, on this very episode, actually, I reviewed one. But one, it was like a pseudo werewolf movie, and it was um, pretty terrible, actually. So once again, it's like this curse. But I think that we should maybe address all of the major ones and maybe even talk about why they fall short and hopefully hopefully inspire like future filmmakers to maybe take some notes. Uh, That sounds presumptuous, but (laughs) but, (laughs) I mean, if we could just listen to us. Well, if we could just identify, though, what the problem is, because... Why? I mean, we don't need to get into it now necessarily, but I mean, why can't they make a good werewolf movie? I don't know, man. I, 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 it's been, you know, a frustration of mine my whole life because like I said, I've been a huge fan and it's funny because a friend of ours, boss butcher is a big vampire guy. And I was reading one of his blog posts. that's like, Oh, vampire movies suck so bad lately. I'm like, try being a werewolf fan, man. At least you've had like 3000 vampire movies. And you know, there's a, there you can make a good top 10 list of solid vampire movies. You know, there's one worse though. And that's me. I, I'm a, um, Loch Ness, you know, Bessie fan. (laughs) And I I cannot get a good movie for that. No, you know what? Poor boss. Water horse. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. Poor boss butcher though. He also, loves like Bigfoot, you know, and he likes, yeah. and he's done actually a pretty good study of all the Bigfoot films out there. And that's another one, which by the way, yeah. is very similar to werewolves in a lot of ways. They can't really make a good Bigfoot film no. either. And I, and I, I've looked into that as well. Cause I'm a big abominable snowman fan. And I actually made a short <laughs> film about abominable snowman at some point. And I love abominable snowman in my in my imagination but as depicted on screen yeah it hasn't been too great the the best one okay this first part's a joke the best one i've seen is probably in the rudolph <laughs> ranking that's <and> really <laughs> the sad thing is that that's not that good of a joke i mean it really is one of the better ones out there is the terrifyingly sad thing no actually the best one i can think of off the top of my head is is the one that appears to be so what it is in Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back's the other one. Yeah, I was going to say that too. And two non horror films. So it'd be great to get a really good, scary movie that had a, a snow beast in it. But so far, not too much going on. I mean, honestly, my favorite one is probably the Hammer film one. And that, again, is not very good. But yeah. Well, and, and for that matter, I mean, if we're just being real honest here, there aren't that many horror films set in the snow. Right. Well, I mean, my all-time favorite, the thing is, so it's you know, yeah, in Dead Snow. I mean, there are a couple really good ones, but if you line it up, like for for whatever reason, and I think maybe if I had to theorize, that has to do with 
I mean, the setting of this genre is darkness and blackness. And, yeah. And, and when you're out in the snow, especially in the daytime, it's just super bright. Hmm. So I, that's my That's theory. a good point. And honestly, my two favorite locations for movies, not just horror movies, but movies in general, are the snow and, tropic, and tropical locations. And both of them suffer from the problem you just suggested. But um, yeah. I don't know. Like The Gray isn't exactly a horror film, but it – it rides the line a little bit maybe. And that's, mm-hmm. a, that's pretty effective. Yeah, it is. And and that's just it. I think that they can make good, good horror films in, in the snow, but I just don't think they choose to. Plus, I guess it's a pain to shoot in the snow, but the, you know, and what are you going to do? Have somebody stranded on a chairlift overnight? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> easy, easy. I love that movie. Um, here, Here's the thing though. Now, now that I'm talking about this, I'm kind of getting excited. Some of the best horror films, or at least the most, um, what's the word? The most well-executed, or the ones with the truly, like, genuinely, deeply scary films are the ones that are able to pull off horror in the daylight. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's truly scary, because people, when it's dark, they're like, okay, it's dark, we're going to have a horror scene. But I love when they surprise you, and something horrific happens in the daytime, because it's so off guard. Right. So. Yeah, it's true. I mean, and, and uh, another thing I was going to say is, I just, and it's, this is true of werewolf movies, and abominable snow movies, and snow movies in general, I'm just always rooting for them to be good. I want them to be good so bad, because I want to have another favorite movie to add to my list. I remember when Dreamcatcher came out, I was just like, please let this be good. Please let this be good. Like, but yeah, it was a little bit of a disappointment. Well, well, so, so since this is going to be our Halloween episode, no, not Halloween, Thanksgiving, actually. Um, <laughs> you brought up um, Eli Roth's Thanksgiving trailer, and I wanted to see what you had to say about this, because I think you wanted to talk about it. Well, I was so looking forward to that movie, and yeah, it's all over the top, and yeah, it's you know very exploitative, but I just, you know, the idea of a, just a great Thanksgiving horror film just sounded like so much fun to me and I'll, I will be reviewing a couple uh, for this episode, but that was the one that I just thought this is it. Like this is the exact Thanksgiving horror film I want to see. And there were rumors for years about this movie getting made. First I'd say it was in production, then it would disappear again. And um, I don't know. I just feel like it's a no brainer. It's kind of like when Robert Rodriguez made Machete. Like I think, mm-hmm. Why haven't they made this yet? You can do it for cheap. You you know, there's a built-in audience already just dying for it ever since Grindhouse came out. Yeah. I just wonder why why it hasn't been made yet. And yes, it's completely over the top. And yes, maybe Eli Roth is doesn't have the soft touch <laughs> that a movie like that needs. But I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts on it? Well, actually I wanna let's give a little bit of context in case people are clueless. And then I need to ask you for additional context because it sounds like you know more than I do about it. So when they did that uh, double feature, I think it was like, what, circa 2007 with the Grindhouse release, right? Right. And um, there were these trailers, but they were actually, my understanding was they were fake trailers, just kind of be funny. The idea was to make the film going experience feel like you're at an old Grindhouse double feature. And so it starts with the trailer of Machete and then you have um, Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror. And then between the movies, there are three or four more trailers. You've got uh, Don't, I believe, from Edgar Wright. Mm -hmm. You've got Werewolf Woman of the SS, I believe, from Mm – I'm just getting these off the top of my head, so I apologize if the title's wrong – from Rob Zombie. Um, and then you have Thanksgiving from Eli Roth. And um, 
and you know Eli Ross Thanksgiving was kind of looked like a kind of a typical high school slasher film, but based around the holiday of Thanksgiving, and it was shot um, during the production. If if I'm correct on this, of Hostel Two, I think hmm. um, the the same crew, and they did it shot it over in you know Eastern Europe, wherever they were filming, and they actually went. And I, I'm sorry if I if I would have thought about talking about this a little more in depth, I would have had this all in front of me, but the actual locations and dates and everything but um but yeah they shot it uh the, the same crew took a little break and went and shot the short film uh or trailer for grindhouse um with the exact same crew and makeup department and everything and they used this little eastern european town and tried to make it look like main street america and stuff which i thought was kind of funny but yeah well like these others that though that you previously mentioned then so it does sound like that they were actually considering cuz I was always under the impression until I saw Machete and whatever but I was always under the impression that they were just kind of a joke that they weren't really going to make films like Oh this. I think they were a joke with the idea that maybe we will I mean I think I don't know I think the film wasn't as big a success as Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez had kind of imagined in their minds mm-hmm. but things that people came away from the film talking about, even if it wasn't exactly, you know, death proof being Tarantino's best film or, (laughs) or whatever. I think people did come away talking about those trailers. And I think um, Thanksgiving and, um, and Machete particularly people were really interested in seeing the real versions of those. Um, and so, and so Machete went into production and now we of course know there've been two films based on that little trailer. Um, (laughs) Two feature films, and there's going to be a whole network of the El Rey network that Robert Rodriguez is launch, launching um, in January. That's going to, I think, even have a machete uh, t- television series. So, I mean, they're going to—he got—they got a lot of mileage out of that little in joke at the beginning of uh, Grindhouse. But now, um, and then, yeah, and so then, pretty soon after that, there was also talk that Eli Roth was going to make Thanksgiving as well. But that, sadly, I think for me at least, has never materialized. Um, yeah. Well, and, and there, I, yeah, there were rumors a lot that it was it was going to happen. But I think what what happens with those kind of things is it's just like I've heard people joke about this before. Like you know how, um, what is that? What what is that in Star Wars? I think he, Han Solo says something about making the Kessel Run in twelve parsecs or something like that. Right. And, and then at the end of Blade Runner, there's like you know that really awesome speech about the things he's seen. Right. Um. You know, like people always want to see that stuff after they hear the good lines, like they're interested in seeing it. But then once it comes to fruition and we see it on screen, it's really underwhelming a lot of the times. And I think that's kind of what happens with these things. Well, here, this is um, from Geeks of Doom, which I know that Mm -hmm. you're a fan of as well. Um, It says, Eli Roth says he has figured out Thanksgiving. Here's what Roth had to say in an interview. He said, Thanksgiving is going to happen. I'm working on it right now. I have a call scheduled with my co-writer tomorrow, and we have a very extensive treatment. We finally cracked the story and figured out how to make it really scary and the reason to do it. I'm really excited about it. And this was all over a year ago, and it still isn't even close to uh, going into production. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, I agree with something that you said way back at the beginning, which is, you said that it looks like it looks like it would be the Thanksgiving horror film, and I totally right. agree. You know what? It looks like if these were a family and this were a sister piece. It, I mean, 
it is as My Bloody Valentine 1981, the original, is to Valentine's Day as this yeah. one is to Thanksgiving because it actually looks like it was made by the same filmmakers at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so, listeners, if you haven't seen this trailer for some reason or you forget it, you can go to YouTube and just type in like Eli Roth Thanksgiving. We can link it in the show notes for this episode and right. you can check out that trailer. And it's hilarious and it does. It fits the look. Of the 1981 My My Bloody Valentine. I'll also recommend to people, if you haven't seen Grindhouse, I know when it first came out, again, in theaters, it wasn't a huge hit, and then they released it on DVD separately as Planet Terror and Death Proof. You now can get the Blu-ray, the Grindhouse Blu-ray, that has the double feature experience with the trailers and everything in it. I would totally recommend it. It is honestly one of the best theater-going experiences I've ever had in my life uh, when I sat and watched that. Um, And that baffles my mind why they wouldn't they wouldn't have released it that way all along because that's how it was made and intended yeah i think it's just because um they they kind of bombed and so weinsteins who owned it thought well maybe we can salvage this and just like make it into another quentin tarantino movie you know so i mean quentin tarantino wasn't even counting it as one of his films because it was just kind of this fun side project thing at first I see. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I'll be thinking about this, this little conversation <laughs> we've had, Josh, during my Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> I, 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 I really will. Okay, Jay of the Dead back here with you, and I got some mini reviews for you. And for this particular episode, just because of um, I'm getting a little bit short on time, I've got a lot of horror movies to cover, and I've got very little time to actually record these mini reviews. So I'm going to keep them short, but I will tell you what you need to know. And so for Danielle Harris fans, I've got a, a few reviews for you. Uh, first of all, I want to talk about her movie Among Friends. This had its DVD premiere in 2013, so it's a new film this year. And Among Friends is actually, technically it's Danielle Harris's second film that she's directed, but it's the first film that she has directed solo. Okay, so there was another one from like 2008, I think it was called Prank. And um, I actually tried to track that down because I was curious about it. She had a co-director on that. And if anybody's seen Prank, let me know what you think about it. But anyway, Among Friends is very interesting. Um, As the film opens, I was very, very skeptical because it's super bright and flashy. And it's so stylized that it really calls attention to itself. And then the characters are slightly you know, they're acting a little bit bigger, like more than they needed to. But then when you settle into this story, I got to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised. Among Friends is about this group of people. It's like prom night, okay? And so before the prom, though, one of them organizes this murder mystery dinner party. I don't know if you guys have ever been to those, but they're kind of lame. And the dinner party They all go there and show up, and the one friend who's organizing it, she is very meticulous in her details and in her preparation. This character is played by Alyssa Lobet, and basically, this this murder mystery dinner party has a little bit of a nefarious agenda to it, because it turns out that this group of friends, like many groups of friends, I might add, has a lot of skeletons in their closet. And so this Bernadette character takes it upon herself to uh, get all this out in the open at this murder mystery dinner party. And, um, you know, this is this sounds like a bunch of drama, right? I mean, this sounds like a, a high school girl drama. But here's the thing. 
<laughs> she um, uses some pretty extreme measures in this. So it has a, a little bit of torture element in it. And, you know, the various things that the friends have done to wrong each other and these skeletons in the closet are pretty bad, I have to say. And so throughout the course of the night, it escalates, of course, and, you know, it gets to be this really ugly, ugly thing. And so honestly, I, I wasn't expecting much out of this film, but I was pleasantly surprised. I was, <laughs> I was actually um, sort of impressed. Now, there is one scene where this girl is like tripping on mushrooms and she has this like crazy trip. And they use this scene in order to cloak the fact that they can't pull off certain sequence very easily. You know, there's something else going on during this scene that's pretty extreme that I, I guess they didn't want to handle, didn't have the budget to handle, or didn't know how to actually pull it off without getting like NC-17. So you've got this really long tripping sequence that's um, kind of annoying, actually. And I think it's meant to be. I think it's meant to be grading. So that's fine. This has a lot of, you know, sensuality and some sexual situations in it as well. So it's, um, you know, it'll keep your attention. It'll keep you awake. The hostess, the Bernadette character actually kind of, you know, it's like she's savoring it and she drags it out. And, you know, that's a character choice. And I know that they did that. That's actually part of the story is the fact that she's like loving it. But you feel that a little bit as an audience member as well, I got to say. But still, I mean, this is definitely something I would recommend. Daniel Harris did a fine job. I think the opening sequence is a little bit crazy, you know, a little bit too much. But aside from that, she did well. So I think you should check out Among Friends. I'd give it a 6.5 out of 10, and I'd say rent it. Persons who have recently died have been returning to life. That's Romero speaking from the times about a bleakness the culture was suffering. And we just wanted to make a ballsy horror film as we could make. I don't think audiences were ready for Night of the Living Dead. I think that's why they were drawn to it. All right, Josh, we're going to review a documentary together. And since you are the documentary expert on this podcast, why don't you take us into that and lead the discussion? Well, the documentary we are discussing is called The Birth of the Living Dead. And um, I'll give you two guesses what it's about. <laughs> it's about uh, the night of the living dead. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's really all it is. It, it covers that film in detail. You know, the George A. Romero 1968 classic, uh, the director of that film is called, is named Rob Coons. Um, and it's a brand new movie. It's streaming online. You can find it on Amazon prime is where I watched it. Um, mm -hmm. Did you find it elsewhere, Jason or online? Nope. Same here. And, um, and it's got interviews with, uh, well, primarily George Romero. Um, it doesn't get into a lot of interviews with the other people on the crew, but it's it, it does get into a lot of depth of as to who the other people on the crew were. And you get a lot of information that I'd never heard about um, the cast members and how they were also all the crew members. And I think, um, you know, as a film, for me, it's not particularly great filmmaking necessarily. I mean, as a documentary filmmaker, I take a lot of joy in documentaries that are really great movies in and of themselves. Right. I would say this is more like a behind the scenes documentary you might find on a DVD special feature. Yeah. Um, yeah. But of that quality, I think it's really good. I think it's very high quality for that type of documentary. You nailed that, by the way. I think that's exactly right. It does feel like a behind the scenes documentary. So it'd be one that would come as like the special features, but it wouldn't be necessarily one that you would like seek out and buy on its own. Yeah. Unless I think, honestly, I think if you're a fan of this podcast, 
I think this is right up your alley because it's it's an in-depth look at this classic film. You know, this is kind of what they do is kind of exactly what we do. I almost feel like we could never cover Night of the Living Dead on this podcast now that this movie exists because they do it so well. They do. Yeah, and and for those and we should probably say that up front too. I can't imagine that anybody out there listening to this podcast has not seen Night of the Living Dead, but definitely you want to watch that film first before watching Birth of the Living Dead because obviously they go through the major plot points and so forth, obviously. And, you know, um, the selection of interviews was a little strange, honestly, but there were some good people. It was it was more showing in terms of the interview selection, it was showing the impact the film has had. So you have a producer like Gail Ann Hurd, who was a producer on The Walking Dead, um, or Larry Fessenden, who's like a huge, you know, guru in the independent oh. film world right now. Yeah, he he was actually the best part for me. I even I even actually valued Larry Fessenden more than George Romero's comments because <laughs> he was so insightful. I mean, um, let me see here. And and something I was going to ask you about that was, do you think that Romero didn't get quite as like analytical about his film and, and its subtext and all that because <clears throat> that would seem presumptuous or pompous or something or... Yeah, I think he I think he takes a little bit of joy in leaving some mystery to it. I also think he's kind of been burnt on some of his newer films for talking about that stuff so explicitly. Like people gave him a hard time about it on Land of the Dead, like it was too overt. And so yeah. maybe it would have been better if he maybe he feels it'd been better if he hadn't said anything. Yeah. But yeah, I mean there are some really brilliant, you know, film critics as well brought in. Um one of my absolute, you know, my favorite film critic of all time actually is probably Elvis Mitchell. Really? And um yeah, he's, I mean, he hasn't, he's not the most standout part of the documentary by any means, but I, just having him in there and knowing he knows his stuff, he is a true film historian. I mean, he knows more about film than anyone I've ever heard of in my entire life. Wow. And he, he does a podcast called The Treatment that's on the same station actually as uh, The Business. They're both public radio shows on LA's KCRW. Um, and his, his is an interview show. He used to be a critic for the New York Times, and I was a big fan of his criticism for the New York Times. But um, his, he has a great podcast as well. It's just all interviews with filmmakers. And it's clear when he interviews them that he's thought a lot more about their movies than they have. <laughs> so he was kind of perfect for this with Romero kind of taking a posture he did in this movie. Although yeah. I don't think Romero's bad in it. I think, and I no, no, kind no. of like his kind of wry responses to where do the zombies come from and stuff like that. I really liked his approach to that. Oh yeah. I agree with you. I mean, he was definitely entertaining, uh, of course. And you know, a couple of impressions I got from this. Um, number one, you know, I think we, as like the grandfather of zombies and all that, I think we hold him on this very high, high position, but honestly, you know, he, he was this guy and I'm not taking away, away anything from that, but I think to him, he was just a dude who tried out horror because it was profitable. And he even still seems very nonchalant about that. <laughs> and, and and I love that. It's like, it, it wasn't like he was some kind of like, um I don't know, prodigy of horror, even though I do think he's super talented. But are you getting what I'm saying? I, th- I feel like I'm speaking yeah. very, very well, I, wrongly here. But, no, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, he feels, he. I mean, it starts out talking about how we, how we made commercials and, right. you know, and. And that he was, was just a really commercial director. He's made a lot of money doing that, and he just wanted to make something he could make cheaply. I mean, I do feel like he really put his whole heart and soul into making the movie. Well, yeah, 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 absolutely. And I did like how they kind of illustrated 
that he did his time and he paid his dues with like the soap commercials and working for Mr. Rogers neighborhood and all that <laughs> other stuff he did. I think that's really interesting and, and inspiring too. I mean, for other filmmakers, it's like, Hey, you might be doing soap commercials today, but you could be Romero tomorrow. You don't know. <laughs> exactly. Larry Fessenden again I, is he kind of takes the fan position on on it um, for, compared to everyone else that's in the movie. And so I think that's another reason he's kind of fun to watch in the movie. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, one of the things that I love the most about Night of the Living Dead is the fact that they never actually say the word zombie in the movie. I mean, right. of course, they call them ghouls. And at the time, you know, we all know that George Romero wanted them to be ghouls. But, I, you know, it really takes me out of a zombie movie when people refer to them as zombies. I, I don't know why that... Yeah, it kind of bugs me. <laughs> it just bugs me a little bit. But here's something interesting I really want to um, emphasize here that, that comes out in this documentary. Night of the Living Dead itself was kind of um, a departure from the horror conventions up until that point. Now, this is what's interesting to me. Today, you'll hear horror fans like lament <clears throat> the way that horror is changing and the way they're they're changing the rules or doing some weird things with zombies or whatever it is. Like people complain about that. But here's the thing. Night of the Living Dead, which we all revere as a classic, when it was made, all the other zombie films that preceded it were like voodoo or cursed or some kind of incantation. Like all those were reasons, you know. Right. But for this, I mean, a lot of things were were actually changed for this film and it has become great. So I guess my point is just, I mean, maybe we should be a little more open to people being innovative in the genre <laughs> instead of being so, you know, you see what I'm saying? And also Romero kind of talking about how he doesn't coach zombies. Like he doesn't direct them. He just says, give me your best zombie and lets them kind of go for whatever the the <laughs> person thinks that, you know, that they, that would be, um, which I think, you know, I mean, I've heard him say that a lot, but that was interesting to then contrast that with the producer of The Walking Dead, where she said, we basically took this one zombie in Night of the Living Dead and patterned all of our zombies after them in terms of the gait and the speed and everything. And I thought that was, that's kind of funny. Yeah, that's awesome. I, you know, that didn't occur to me, but that's hilarious that you mentioned that. You know what part of this documentary did not work for me at all, Josh, was um, the the... The teacher in the Bronx, New York. Oh yeah, that was the worst. <laughs> yeah, like for some <laughs> it was a really bad idea. I mean, I don't. I if it had gone to it once, okay. But the fact that they tried to use that as some kind of reoccurring, I don't know. I, that was a really weird choice. I yeah, thought. explain to the listeners what that was and what you think the Basically, point was. They somehow try to tie in that because George Romero was born in the Bronx and because <laughs> there was. Uh, a teacher in the Bronx teaching literacy through film. Um, they have this guy showing his class of 10 year olds or something, uh, night of the living dead and then discussing it and discussing zombie rules with them. And do they eat brains or do they not? Do they, you know, it's just, I don't know. It was really weird. It was fine. Again, the first time to just kind of see the cultural impact that the film has had, that people are still talking about it. The young people are still scared by it. Okay. But they keep going back to it throughout the film as like this touchstone checking back with it every few minutes to say, yes, to basically put a finer point on every point they want to make in the movie, which is, I don't know. I found like a really annoying uh, technique and it, and it didn't work at all. It was really a distraction. It kind of 
you know, the film broke down every time it got to that point. But um, something else I like, there's a little, there's a nice little um, thing at the very end. It's almost like an afterthought where they do a little, a very short memorial there for um, uh, Bill Hensman, who, who was famously the cemetery zombie, like the right. guy in the graveyard at the beginning. And because um, he, he actually passed away in 2012. So I thought that was interesting. But um, Birth of the Living Dead is um, a rather short documentary. That was one thing that I was a little bit disappointed in. It was only an hour and 17 minutes. And it seems to me that there would have been a lot more um, juicy information behind the making of this film. Did, mm. did, were you surprised it was so short? It doesn't get in, into any of the gritty parts of it, does it? It's a little, I guess for an all-inclusive documentary, maybe it's a little... Um, surface, but it is a deeper discussion about this film than you've probably heard elsewhere. That's true. And, uh, you know, I'll say this too. I'm actually going to give this little challenge to myself. I I don't want to cover it here at this point in the podcast because um, I went down through and I made a list of notes of why um, these various critics and people thought that Night of the Living Dead was an effective horror film and why it was kind of a revolutionary horror film. And and I just want to say this and Josh, try to help me with this um, PR here for the people listening. Okay. Um, okay, because I'm, I'm sure I'm going to blow this somehow. I, I don't think I know everything. Okay, I got a lot to learn about life and about horror and all that jazz. But I'm just saying that for the filmmakers out there, because I'm not a filmmaker, but if, if you're a horror filmmaker, I do think that you should watch this documentary and write down all of these little elements of what they say made this an effective horror film. Now, I'm not being condescending. Here's the reason I say this. I did this. I'm going to go through and do it again. And then on a future episode down the road, I want to give everybody a chance to see this. I want to go over those points and talk about them with you guys because they are incredible. And and as I read down through it, I'm like, yep, yep. That's that's because it made me think, Josh, of the horror films that I love and why they were most effective. And it's like, yeah, the ones I love did that and they did that. And so this actually has the secret recipe in it for making a great horror film. And so people, you got to check this out, especially if you're a horror filmmaker. That's a great point. Um, and I would also just to take it a step further, I would say <clears throat> it had a huge social impact. And I think it would be great if filmmakers were thinking a little bit deeper about their movies just beyond the scares and thinking, how can I make something that's actually speaking to my generation, that's meaningful in this time beyond just, you know, the gore or whatever. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons this film is really impressive as a and why it's, you know, been so lasting as well. Yeah. And then finally, and just in conclusion, um, and there are a lot of neat little points and facts, and I, I actually thought about regurgitating them here on the podcast, but then I'm like, okay, well, that's that's killing the documentary. You know, why? That's would- kind of what the whole documentary is. And in fact, I kind of looked at it like this is almost like we did an episode of, <laughs> of uh, you know, of the podcast, and this is kind of all the things we would have maybe talked about, except for I don't know if we would have uncovered quite as much stuff. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, you know, as far as ratings though, I'm coming in, I'm, I'm telling people, I mean, this is an eight to me. I really enjoyed it. And and despite what we said at the beginning, I mean, I know it sounds like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but I'm a huge fan. First of all, I'm a zombie fan and I'm a Romero fan and I'm a night of living dead fan. So for me, this is a buy it. It's a documentary that you, that you need to own, especially if all of the, all of the above apply to you. But again, I think Josh made a good point that it is, um, it is kind of a small film. 
in a lot of ways. And it could be just like a special feature segment. But since it's not, you know, I'm all for supporting it. And I'd say eight and buy it. What do you say, Josh? Yeah, I mean, if it helps you, just take it out of the case and put it inside your Night of the Living Dead case and just pretend it's a bonus disc because (laughs) it's a great bonus disc. If you got this as a bonus disc, you would be extremely excited so yeah. i would just i would i would kind of echo what jason said i think it's a film it's maybe a 6.5 to me but i think for night of the living dead fans which i count myself among romero fans zombie fans it's definitely and for fans of this podcast honestly it's the same kind of conversation we have about movies and so if you like what we do here in terms of the way we dissect the movies i think you'll really enjoy this movie as well yeah so, so you're going with a, sorry, I mixed up. So you're going with a six or what, I mean, what are you saying for rating? Yeah. I mean, I, I would probably give it a six in terms of as a film, but I think, um, you know, like you said, I mean, it's probably a 10 as a special feature. So I think for fans of everything I mentioned, it's probably a buy it still. Okay. Six and buy it. Okay. There you go. And that's our review of birth of the living dead. Okay. I got another Danielle Harris movie here for you. She did not direct this one. Um, this is called Hallow's Eve. It's from 2013. Now, here's the thing about this. And this is where I really want to involve the listeners in our community here because, you know, I want to pull you guys in because I didn't have time to do all the research on this I wanted to do. Now, there are two different Hallow's Eve films, by the way. And this is the one that actually has Daniel Harris and it also has Ashley C. Williams, who played the middle segment of The Human Centipede. <laughs> By the way, I've interviewed her before. She's a nice girl. So that's the one. And I don't know why, but I heard tremendous things. This was really highly anticipated. I think this was supposed to be a a significant film, at least. That was my understanding. And I had been looking forward to it for a long, long time because I heard it was pretty hardcore. But then it's like all the buzz just completely died. And I guess what happened is people saw it because... Yeah, it's it's not a great movie by any means, and it's actually very disappointing, especially from all I heard. And and by the way, for those who don't know, I'm sure everybody knows this, but Hallow's Eve is another name for Halloween. And uh, this movie's only like, it only comes in about 78 minutes, so it's kind of a shorter horror movie as far as that goes. As for the premise, I'll just read it here off of IMDb because it's a pretty good description. It says, years after a tragic accident leaves a young child scarred for life. The people responsible pay with their lives. (laughs) Yes. Well, the first thing I want to tell you up front about Hallow's Eve is um, this has got absolutely atrocious acting. And I, I realize that in the horror genre, you know, you don't always get the best acting. But this is like below normal. (laughs) I wrote in my notes as I was watching this worst acting ever. (laughs) Which is actually a knock on the directing, because when you've got acting that's that bad, that means that it has slipped by the director. And so, you know, you really can't blame the performers at that point, because if these people are that terrible, either they just have no talent for acting and they should have been dismissed or, you know, the director has told them to do this. So director Sean McGarry There are elements I like about this film, which I'll talk about in a minute, but the acting is just, it has to be a huge knock on this. Anyway, so the young child that was scarred in my plot description there, her name is actually Eve. 
there you go. That's another connection there. And and you've got this group of people here. This is 10 years after the tragic events that happened to Eve when she was a child. And they run what's called the Bates Motel Haunted House, right? And um, it's a little haunted house attraction. And this is actually a really good setting for a horror film. And I'm going to be reviewing another one later on in this episode that actually uses this much, much better. Now, another reason you can tell this is kind of a, an amateurish horror film is the, um, it seems like in flicks like this, they want to portray the hip youth crowd or whatever. They want to portray young people, you know, or try to portray them accurately. And so they like, they actually overdo the vulgarity in the way they talk. And I mean, it's, it's very over the top in this. And this is one of those those horror films that's that's a little bit on the boring side. I mean, they show you some things along the way, like they have like sultry scenes here and there in order to try to, I guess, keep your attention. But like, you know, by the 31 minute mark, still nothing really has happened at all. And the first kill doesn't actually come in until about the 37 minute mark. And it actually, it's actually a pretty good kill, except for the very last moment. You know, it, it looks fake at the very end. If they had to cut that off before that, you know, they have like a, a face bash. And I won't really describe any more than that. It is pretty amazing until the end. Now, Hallow's Eve, I got to give it a little bit of credit because the kills, in a lot of ways, it kind of harkens back to some of the 80s stuff. I mean, it, this is very rough, though, you know, as far as that goes. But I got to give them credit for that because... I think that also was a stylistic choice, and if you love the 80s cinema, I mean, I think you'd really enjoy this. If you think that's cheesy, then this isn't up your alley, but honestly, I'm a big fan of Ashley C. Williams. Danielle Harris, she had a role in this, but she might as well not even have been cast because her role was barely anything. But still, I mean, I give it a 5.5 actually for the kills and for the Ashley C. Williams scenes. And by the way, the killer on the cover art doesn't really appear that way in the film, just so you know. But overall, it's kind of disappointing. And I think 5.5 is gracious. But for a film like this that tries to do some some good kills, a little bit of retro work there, I got to give them credit. So 5.5, rent it if you dare. Now, Josh, I admit it, I used to watch CSI Las Vegas. And I actually really <laughs> love that TV show. You always laugh at me when I say that. Why is that funny? <laughs> I don't know. It just, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I just can't imagine anyone watching CSI Las Vegas. I <laughs> that that's hilarious coming from a guy who watches every season of Survivor and even rewatches the seasons. That's funny that. to me. Oh, I love Survivor. <laughs> anyway, so the crime scene for those who don't know, the crime scene investigators would spend time studying the victims of these grisly murders, like who did heinous acts that just aren't crimes against humanity, but often crimes against nature. And at the end of the episode, each and every time, I was always shocked at how the killer tended to just look like an ordinary person. And I guess that since the crimes were so awful, I just always anticipate seeing like a monster there. Yeah. And, and even though these killers are monsters of sorts on the inside, they didn't appear to be monsters on the outside. So, so just to throw in a little side note here, Josh, before I ask you this, that's actually something very freaky for me to think about is how many real life monsters do we actually come in contact with or live near every day of our lives i mean we don't even know it and i think that's actually kind of scary but yeah i i was um i used to i lived in europe for a few years and i was in amsterdam and i had a meeting with this guy who was just completely completely insane 
And like to the point where I was terrified to be in the room with a guy. <laughs> and um, and we left the room, my friend and I, and we're driving um, on the interstate um, in Amsterdam. I guess they don't call it the interstate there. I don't remember what it was called <laughs> anymore. The highway. <laughs> time. The highway. And, um, and then we see this guy in the car next to us driving on the interstate. And it just freaked me out to think how many other people are as crazy as this guy just driving around the roads right now. Yes. <laughs> it was something about that moment that just really struck fear into my heart. Well, my cousin, who is a police officer, he once told me, he said, if for one day, all the people who were criminally insane just glowed hot pink, you wouldn't believe how many people around <laughs> you would be hot pink. <laughs> and I'm like, that is so upsetting. I hate even thinking about that. So anyway. Um, back to this this topic here I'm going to present. This is probably the closest to real life uh, when, you know, the monsters that we see depicted actually are just look like regular people. I mean, there really aren't that many examples of like a monster man type of killer, for those who have seen that movie, where the appearance of the attacker matches the scariness of the axe. I mean, I'm sure this will come up on our next uh, big episode with Dr. Shock when we talk about animalistic vampires but you know how i love my suave vampires jay and i think that's part of it they blend right in oh. and that's why and that's why i like body snatcher movies because that's scary to me it's that uncanny valley effect where it's just something's just slightly off that freaks me out big time well i knew that you and i should talk about this because we actually differ on this point i mean you're you feel that way and i actually like the more animalistic type of vampires i think they're scarier to me right and um and, and that's funny because, like, you're, like, a slow zombie man. I'm a fast zombie man. So <laughs> that, that's just funny what people's preferences are. But but so we know here that how you feel then. It, it freaks you out that these these uh, monsters can blend in because they look like us then. You you actually prefer oh, yeah. that because that's scarier to you. Body Snatcher movies are probably my one of my favorite, absolute favorite, is just subgenres. And, uh, yeah, that is terrifying to me. They, it could be anybody. And, um and honestly, I mean, you always give me a hard time about these movies too, you know, like whether or not Misery and Silence of the Lambs are horror movies. But to me, Kathy Bates in Misery is the scariest movie monster I can ever imagine. I mean, she, to me, is terrifying. <laughs> no, I get that. I, and I can see the argument for those, uh, for sure. I mean, those, uh, boy, Misery is right on the line of thriller and horror. But like, yeah, I mean, for me, Silence of the Lambs, I mean, I see what you're saying. Silence of the Lambs is is right there on the border too. But I guess that's dumb to always fight about that. Why do we do that? <laughs> but, but, but speaking of this, so I have a scale here and I need to develop this further at some point. I think it would be interesting to like write a Kyle Bishop type of paper on this, but um, there's a scale because like if you look at Predator or Alien, okay, those monsters, right? they are clearly monsters and their appearance is scary to us. And then the next, so that's one tier, and I, I would call that maybe the most severe tier, or maybe the tier before that even would be like the thing, 1982 John Carpenter's, <laughs> when you get these monsters that aren't even like relatable as humanoid figures. It's funny that all three of those are science fiction movies, though. I mean, like that some people would actually argue about the horror ness of all of those movies but anyway sorry go ahead that's just a side note no i like that i like that you brought that up so yeah i guess the the first tier then would be the thing and and monsters that are not necessarily um relatable or humanoid and then and then the next would be predator alien and then the next step down i would say like 
the Wolfman, like Lon Chaney's Wolfman. Right. Um, and he is clearly, you know, a creature of some sort, even though he's still humanoid. And then a very close one right beyond that would be like um, Phantom of the Opera. Again, Lon Chaney. And, and right. I mean, everybody's seen that. Like, if you haven't seen that movie, then just like do a Google Images search of his picture. And he actually did that makeup, which is very impressive. But then also like a Jason Voorhees would be that too. Like you take off the hockey mask and he's kind of disfigured in his face. Right. But he's still closer to, they're still both like clo- a little bit closer. And then there's like Count Dracula. And we'll just cite like the 1931, the Dracula like swab and debonair and he has fangs and so that's something about him that's physically unusual but still he's closer to us and then the next right. next tier would be michael myers okay and where i mean he wore the william shatner mask but still if you took that off i mean i mean at one point especially in the very first halloween as it begins like he's just a little boy Right. Right. And then there's like the Hannibal Lecter types who are horrifying monsters, but they just look like regular guys. So um, what do you think about this scale? I mean, what can we what can we do with that, if anything, like this whole gradation of monsters? Well, first of all, I want to know where Leatherface fits on that scale. That's my first question. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, he's he's probably up around the Phantom of the Opera, Jason Voorhees region for me at least what would you say yeah i mean in some ways he's kind of like michael myers where he's a quote-unquote regular guy under the mask but that mask is so horrific and the fact that it's made out of humans (laughs) you know it, it to me again it's just that uncanny valley thing something is so wrong with this that it just, I don't know, that's almost scarier to me than a mon- like a monster in Cloverfield or Super 8 that just looks silly to me. I, don't, I can't get scared about those monsters. The thing is different for me, and I think it's just the fact that it's physical and gooey. I think that scares me a lot more than even in The Faculty, which is riffing on the thing. Those just don't look scary to me, these CGI. Yeah creations i don't know why that is exactly but well but if you had to fight okay and i think i've heard you say this before so this is a little bit of a trap i'm sorry but if you if you you had to fight a monster i mean would you want to fight like predator or alien or would you rather fight like a hannibal lecter type or michael myers even though michael myers is a little bit supernatural but still i mean what kind of would you want to fight a regular looking guy or a freaky looking guy i'd take your point so you're saying they're just automatically scarier because if it was a real world scenario it would be scarier is that, what you're, is that kind of what you're, what well, you're getting at? Well, yeah, because their mere appearance is off-putting and startling. But is it, it's kind of, to me, that's a difference between a, like a immediate reaction versus a big picture reaction. Because, <laughs> yes, like if I saw, you know, if I saw some kind of hideous blob with tentacles, immediately I'm going to be more freaked out by the lady in slither that's like a little tiny face on a giant body and that that is obviously immediately more terrifying but the idea of you know body snatchers who i can't recognize and tell exactly who it is and they're everywhere around me that long term big picture is much scarier and more terrifying ultimately going back to our first 
or second episode on ghosts. You can't even see those. They might be next to you right now. That to me is scarier, you know, in the broader sense, even though, yes, you're right. Like the physical damage it would cause you is probably less uh, brutal immediately. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I like that last thing you said. We're actually going to be addressing that next. But I do want to say the first part of your point, it's almost like you're suggesting that a monster like the thing, like you'd warm up to it and you'd get used to that appearance and then like, (laughs) you know, eat popcorn and go see a movie with it. I mean, come on, you can never warm up to that kind of a monster. the, The thing is a difficult example only because it also is a body snatcher. But let's say let's take the predator. Okay. If I, if I can blow up the predator with a bomb, it's over. Right. But I, you know, in invasion of the body snatchers, we're talking about the entire town. We're then talking about perhaps the entire world, you know? And so that escalates much quicker. And even the difference between a body snatcher and a zombie, at least zombies, I can identify who they are. It might take me a minute. They might look like a crickety old man at first or, (laughs) or something, you know, or somebody that has some jam spilled across their face, but eventually I'm going to figure out that I'm fighting a zombie. And even though that is also, you know, has worldwide implications potentially, at least I can identify them to me. I don't know, man, the body snatcher is still the scariest for me. I see. Okay. Well, let's talk about this ancient idea. I mean, it's really not that, I mean, it goes back very far, but it's actually pretty prevalent even today um, where things that are ugly, you know, are equivalent to evil and then things that are beautiful are always good. And we see this in a lot of Disney stuff. And then they started trying to like, I I guess, um, compensate or change this with like, um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, or however you pronounce that, and then like Beauty and the Beast, right? But but tell me what you think about this whole thing. The Frankenstein. Where... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, but I mean, I think I think that maybe that's why it's not as scary. It is obviously horrific, and I think you know some of us horror fans. That's one of the main reasons we like it is just to kind of get creeped out and scream or get freaked out for a minute. But you know, I think we also have been trained you know, through all those examples you mentioned, um, the Phantom of the Opera, you know, Frankenstein, that these are really, if we would be kind to these freaks, (laughs) (laughs) they may actually leave us alone, you know. (laughs) But you don't have to be politically correct with them. You can still call them freaks. (laughs) Yeah, well, they're clearly freaks. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. Okay, so, um, all right, I think you've already answered this question then. Is it scarier if the monster is ugly or scarier if the monster looks like us and you think the latter if it looks like us? I mean, I, I totally take your point. And in some ways, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit. But I mean, the you know, body central movies are my favorite for a reason because it does creep me out on a really big scale. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, if I had the choice between being in the same room as – um, you know, a guy who looks normal and a terrifying monster, you know, like the alien from aliens, I'm going to pick the guy right. nine times out of 10. Well, yeah. Yeah. Cause that, that alien thing has, I'll even sad. take the wolf man to the alien. I'll even take Leatherface to the alien because the alien. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, he has acidic blood too, by the way, let me tell you something about the alien. I've mentioned this before on the other podcast, but I doubt anybody's heard it here. Um, when the you know how when alien like would bite and has that second set of jaws back in its throat that shoot out its mouth, 
Yeah, the worst. Yeah, well, a moray eel actually has that same thing in real life. Like when they bite onto something, there's like a second set of jaws back in their throat that like launch forward and snap like exactly like like they usually use this for like a fish. So if they bite a fish's face and it's bigger, you know, then the face of the fish will be in there and it'll still be wiggling around. And then the little mouth, the little jaws will come up and take off the face of the fish. Oh, man. Why do you have to tell me these things? <laughs> horrifying? That's like I, the, <laughs> the scariest thing ever. Go ahead. I already hate eels. I'm already scared of eels just for the fact that they wiggle out into the ocean. But yeah, that Ew. just that makes them 20 times scarier. Yes. I do remember you saying mentioning that on, on Movie Podcast Weekly. But, <laughs> ugh, dude. That's very, very upsetting in, in like a deep way. But okay. So in, we're almost done with this conversation, but I'm just really curious about this too. So if the creature, let's talk about if the creature effects aren't very good versus if the actions or the acts of the monster aren't disturbing, okay? So yeah. I've set this up into like, I think there are four different options, okay? And and honestly, if people are wondering, I don't even know why we're talking about this, but it's just, we're just being analytical here. So there's the option where if if it's scary looking and it does scary things, or if it's scary looking, but it's pretty tame as a monster. Or if it's, you know, pretty mild looking or tame looking, but it does scary acts. Mm-hmm. Or if it's tame looking and it does tame acts, obviously that's not much of a monster <laughs> at all. So, I mean, are there any of those distinctions that when you heard me describe it, you're like, oh, that's that's my monster right there. Yeah, yeah, I already know. It's, it's, it's the way it acts. This is the most important okay. uh, by far. I mean... Um, like a big giant, again, these CGI creatures, if it just looks grotesque, well, that's one thing, but if it moves in a scary way, whoa, that gets under your skin. I mean, it's kind of like this more eel you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly there's something happening here. I wasn't prepared for, you know, and, um, Leatherface is another good example. When he slams that door shut, you're like, no, right. No. Right, You know, and there are just things when it moves in a way you don't want it to move. That is to me what freaks me out when a body, you know, you see this a lot in monster movies. Like there's a joint where there shouldn't be a joint. (laughs) That's that always gets me every time. Or the one that gets me. I mean, this is very prominent in J horror, like Japanese horror. Like when they move um, in a very like uh, unnatural, unnatural, like almost like. Um, <laughs> creepy way and sometimes the filmmakers will actually achieve this effect right Josh by taking out frames you know and shooting, and shooting in reverse oftentimes yeah and so and then it gives a very unnatural now see that's the other thing and I wish Kyle were here to talk to us about this part but why is it that unnatural bothers us so much because that's something that's really big to me if it's unnatural I get free. I get cold chills. The hair stands up on my neck. Why is that scary? I mean, I think it's just back to the whole uncanny valley thing. I think we know what organic material looks like. We know how it's supposed to move. And so if it doesn't move the way our minds have been trained our entire lives to see it move, suddenly we know something's wrong. And then if that thing is coming at us in the dark, we know it's really wrong. Right. 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 And so, I mean, whether it's animal or plant or man, you know, if it's moving in a way, you know, our minds already know how it's supposed to look. And so, I mean, even from a movie that's not supposed to be scary, like, you know, Polar Express, if it doesn't look (laughs) quite right, it's suddenly scary. 
Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, and then finally on this topic, let's talk about the the nature of fear then as you go down through the characteristics. So like um, they're scary looking, but then there's like loud and startling. Like it, it really bothers me if, if a if a monster is loud. Oh yeah. You know, like and that's they, why the jump scares are so effective. And that's why we've learned to hate them when they're done poorly or when they're used, you know, in a cheap way. Because, yeah, sound has a huge effect on it. So we know that from music, too, right? And M. Night Shyamalan, you know, actually always talks about how what something sounds like is 10 times more scary than yeah. or can, re- and can really enhance what it looks like. And in fact, um, I'm glad you brought that point up because on The Village, which I love, um, that film was initially rated R, and it was rated R. Um, what, what, For scary sounds. <laughs> what it came, well, it came down to one sound effect. Um, there's a scene where a character gets stabbed, and then they show the knife being pulled out. And there was a sound effect with that imagery, and the MPAA is like, nope, this is R. And then when they took out that sound effect, it's still the stabbing. They still show the knife being pulled out, but the sound is gone. And they gave it PG-13. Interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I mean, one of my all-time scariest moments in movies is The Thing. And it's not one of the big blob monsters. It's a thing that looks mostly human out in the snow. Yes. And it makes a sound <laughs> that it shouldn't be making. Yeah, that a human <laughs> shouldn't be making. And it's really loud, too. Yeah. 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 That, that so is, you've got the uncanniness of it and the, and the, and the level of noise and man, it's and, just unnerving. And, and, and like you said, mostly human, but he's got that hand. <laughs> or we talked about the haunting. I mean, I know you weren't the biggest fan of it, but one of the scariest moments I think anybody could say is when it's, you just hear the loud pounding against their door and there's nothing happening on screen other than they're in bed scared and there's some really loud noise. Oh yeah. But man, that's effective. It is. It's freaky. And actually in that movie, I've said this on episode two, but in that movie, the haunting, like um, when they, it wasn't even meant to be scary, but when they did that quick morphing aging of the years, you know, they made that child look old that kind of freaked me out and that wasn't even supposed to be scary. I don't think, but, (laughs) (laughs) but okay. So we talked about like unnaturalness um, and then aggressive, of course, if the monster is aggressive versus if it's not aggressive, obviously. And if it's harmful, if it like actually inflicts injury or death and if it's dangerous. And so, you know, you think about um, characters like Michael Myers, like he has like all of those things basically, except loud. He's, he's really not loud. You right. know, you know, but but then a great example of this would be Zelda in Pet Cemetery, um, who is all of these things to me. This whole list of scary looking, um, loud, unnatural, aggressive, harmful, dangerous, like all those right. things. And that's why that character is just horrifying to well, me. And as Michael Myers goes on in the franchise, he becomes loud via his jump scares, right? So well, yeah. the music become the music becomes the loud element, even though he himself is not loud. That's a you're very good you're point. still getting that visceral reaction to ah! right. That's a good point. Okay, now we've got Shiver. It's from 2013. It was released on DVD in October. It's directed by Julian Richards, and this is my third Danielle Harris film for this episode. She stars in the movie along with John Jarrett, who does a great job. And you should know up front that Shiver is one of those crime thriller horror flicks where most of it 
follows more of a serial killer narrative as opposed to the traditional horror story. So most of the film kind of feels more like a thriller than anything else. As for the premise, I mean, you got Daniel Harris. She plays the secretary in Portland, Oregon. She's hard up for money. She has this pretty awful mom. (laughs) So because of her mother, you know, she's portrayed pretty sympathetically in this kind of mousy way. And so we feel for her a little bit, and that makes us get behind her as a character. And then there's this serial killer, and he's known as the Griffin. And he's at large, and he's out there beheading women. (laughs) And he sets his sights on this secretary character, played by our girl Danielle. And so, for a lot of this movie, it's kind of a cat and mouse game, where the secretary has to find the courage within herself to fight back, and try to escape, you know, from being another victim. And that's basically the premise to this movie. And the opening is actually really solid. We see the killer as he gets started, presumably with his first kill. And he's sitting in a diner and there's this waitress that he's really fond of and she rejects him and therefore provokes him. And so the opening scene really works and it gave me high hopes for the film as a whole. But really the rest of the movie kind of dips into boredom until the end when the final conflict heats things up again. But even after an hour, I mean... I remember looking at the clock at the hour mark shiver already feels very long after just one hour and there's some decent imagery in there like the aftermath of this shotgun blast it looks real it looks like that's what would really happen and then there are these jars that the killer uses which you know it's already been spoiled on the DVD cover if you haven't seen it but anyway that that looks pretty intriguing in the film And really, for an indie flick, I guess Shiver actually looks pretty good. And it would, because I think it had like a $4 million budget. But I just gotta tell you, I mean, I'm a crime film guy myself. I do like thrillers. And so it was passable to me, probably for that reason. But I'd still give it like a 4.5, which is usually an avoid for me. But I'd still call this one a rental But I will emphasize it's a low-priority rental. And so that's Shiver from 2013. I don't know if there's any such thing as a bad zombie. I mean, I love them all. But no, you get people that come out. And if I do anything, if I make a gesture, you know, if I'm talking to the 20 zombies and they're all, you know, looking at me and saying, well, what do I do? Well, you walk over here. And if I go like that, everybody does that. So pretty much, you know, I just say, do whatever you want. Do your best zombie, man. That clip you just heard was an excerpt from Rob Kuhn's documentary, Birth of the Living Dead. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Dave Becker, a.k.a. Dr. Shock, and I'm just submitting, uh, you know, Jay had asked us to um, think of some ideas for solo cast, and I've never done this before, so I'm completely new to this. But um, an idea I came up with was uh, talking about, I actually put together a list of my 20 favorite horror films of the new millennium. Okay, and I am including the year 2000 in that. I know there are some people out there, the new millennium began in 2001, but I did include the year 2000 on my list, uh, at least in one instance. And, um, you know, a lot of people, they're not into making lists, and I certainly understand that. For me, I, I enjoy doing it. It just helps me sort of uh, put my thoughts together and uh, uh, and arrange them. And, um, you know, I do understand because a lot of times you leave off good movies. And sure enough, I got a lot of honorable mentions I'll be talking about here. So just to get things started pulling up the list here and uh, I have it like I said I have a number of um, honorable mentions now one thing that's not there's not none of the Saw movies none of the paranormal activity movies are on here uh, I did like some of the Saw films especially the first one 
Um, I wasn't that big into the paranormal activity movies, to be honest with you, so I, I didn't have any of them. Also, a lot of the recent trend of remakes uh, isn't going to be on here. It's mostly absent. There's a couple, but, you know, I would throw out a, a nod to movies like Rob Zombie's Halloween and the uh, 2005 movie The Hills Have Eyes. Those, I would put them on my honorable mentions. You know, that I thought they were good movies. They just didn't quite make the list. Other honorable mentions would be uh, Eli Roth's Cabin Fever. There's a French movie, Frontiers, uh, which I really liked. The uh, indie film Mulberry Street. It's a movie about uh, were-rats, uh, not werewolves, were-rats. Uh, the Aussie movie, Wolf Creek. Bubba Hotep, which is a great film with Bruce Campbell playing Elvis Presley. I mean, it's, it's funny, but it does have its creepy moments as well. Jeepers Creepers. That movie ends a little strangely, but that, I'll tell you what, that first half hour or so, that is some incredible tension. The Mist, which is probably the best Stephen King adaptation for quite a while. The French zombie movie, The Horde, was a lot of fun. I guess found footage style movie, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Uh, we, we follow a serial killer, you know, almost like a Jason or Michael Myers type as he learns his craft, so to speak. The vampire movie, 30 Days a Night, I would throw on there. And then the two most recent films on the uh, honorable mentions would be the Evil Dead remake, which I enjoyed more than I thought I would, and uh, The Conjuring, the uh, James Wan movie that we already discussed in detail uh, in the previous episode. So with that said, starting down from number 20, and I'm going to go through these rather quickly. Um, Jay wanted us to sort of keep these brief. So just some quick words about each one. For me, number 20 is uh, Martyrs or Martyrs, the 2008 French film about these uh, two young women who experience, let's just say, the worst uh, sort of tortures that, uh, that are imaginable. It's very violent. It's very graphically violent and a very disturbing movie, but definitely one worth checking out. Number 19, The Orphanage, a 2007 Spanish film produced by Guillermo del Toro. Very unique ghost story. Um, I'll tell you what, it, it's very unsettling, too. Uh, if you haven't seen that one, another one worth seeing. Obviously, I'm not going to say that with all of these. These are all ones that I'm recommending, all ones that I think you should check out. Okay, number 18 might be surprising. It's The Strangers. And I don't think it's surprising that it's on the list, but that it's ranking so low. I know other people would rank this a lot higher. I did like it. I liked it enough to put it on the list, but not enough really to, you know, to put it in the top 10. Still, it is a very well-made home invasion style film from 2008. Liv Tyler was a star of that one. Okay, number 17, Trick or Treat. The 2007 horror anthology it has some really fun stories in there. It's sort of become a Halloween fixture. I know it has at my house, you know, and, it, and for a lot of other people, and rightly so. It was made for that holiday, and it's really a movie you should watch around Halloween. And if you haven't checked it out, you know, check it out whenever you can. Stakeland, number 16, is uh, an indie film directed by Jim Mickle. It's a vampire story with a post-apocalyptic feel, and boy, I was impressed with this one. This was a really well-made vampire movie, and just such a gritty feel to it. Definitely, you know, I, I was blown away by how much I liked Stakeland. Number 15, 28 Days Later. Um, you know, whether you want to call them infected or zombies, you can't deny that this is a very entertaining horror film from director Danny Boyle. Number 14 is The Eye. Now, the one I'm referring to here is the original 2002 Japanese film directed by the Pang Brothers, not the 2008 remake with Jessica Alba. I haven't seen the remake, so I can't comment on the quality of that one. But I will tell you that if you're looking for an effective ghost story, 
you can't beat this one. I mean, there's a scene, um, it's, it's about a girl who gets a transplant. Her, uh, she was blind. She gets these new eyes and she starts to see things. And the person who, uh, whose eyes she gotten, well, let's just say they had a special talent. They were able to see things that other people were not able to see. You know, sort of think of uh, the sixth sense in that regard. And wow, some of those ghosts, yeah, they're, <laughs> they'll stay with you. Number 13 is Wreck. Okay, that's a, a found footage style Spanish film from 2007 about this reporter and um, her cameraman and crew. They end up quarantined in a building where people are turning into zombies. It's definitely one of the best found footage films uh, to come out in the last 10 years, if not the best. Number 12, House of a Thousand Corpses. Now, Rob Zombie's made some good horror films, and this is the one where he got his start. It sort of set the set the bar for everything else that was going to follow. Yes, it's insane, and uh, it gets even crazier as it gets toward the end, but I like that. I liked how it was so unpredictable and, and the different places that it, that it went. So, yeah, that's my number 12 is House of a Thousand Corpses. Okay, number 11, Grindhouse. This is the Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino mashup that pays tribute to the double features of the Grindhouse era, you know, back in the 70s. I like both films. I think they're both entertaining. I mean, you can always debate as to which is better. But um, then I, I got to say, I really enjoy the uh, the fake trailers thrown in there, directed by Rob Zombie, Edgar Wright. Uh, Rodriguez throws in one there for Machete, which he did make into a feature film. And then Eli Ross Thanksgiving is such a throwback to the to the slashes of the 80s. You got to love that. Okay, now we're getting into the top 10. For me, number 10 is Ginger Snaps, a 2000 Canadian film about these two sisters. They don't fit very well into the world around them, and it gets even worse when one of them, played by Catherine Isabel, turns into a werewolf after an encounter with another werewolf. There are some great uh, practical effects in this one. It did have two sequels, the second one of which uh, is also entertaining, but the best is, of course, the first one from 2000, Ginger Snaps. Number nine is Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead, a zombie comedy with Simon Pegg playing the title character. He's out to save his girlfriend and his mother when the zombie apocalypse hits London. There's a scene where he's walking after, you know, he doesn't realize what's going on and he's walking down to the corner store. We saw him make the same walk the day before, you know, and nothing really bad happened. I think he got hit with a soccer ball at that point. But this time the apocalypse is hit and he just is in a complete daze. He walks down to get his drink. There's blood everywhere. There are bodies everywhere. There are broken windows everywhere and he has no clue. And uh, Wright shot that so, so well. I mean, it, it's funny and it's it's a bit tense at the same time. Uh, number eight is uh, 2004's Dawn of the Dead, the, uh, the remake. I absolutely love the original. It's my number two horror film of all time. And really surprisingly, I enjoyed the remake as well. About people trapped inside a mall. Um, you know, to escape the uh, the zombie outbreak. It was Zack Snyder's first film, and uh, sort of still sort of started the trend for fast-moving zombies, which you know it's debatable as to as to whether they're better or not. Um, you know, personally, I think I do prefer the slow-moving zombies, but the ones in this movie are do still work. I mean, when they come charging at these characters, you know, it, it ratchets the tension up a notch. Number seven is one a lot of people might not have heard of. It's a 2010 Spanish film called Kidnapped. This, in my opinion, is an even better home invasion movie than The Strangers. It's expertly made. It's very well acted, very well shot, and probably some of the most disturbing scenes you will ever see in a home invasion movie. So this is the one 
I would recommend even over the strangers. I recommend the strangers, but I would recommend kidnapped over that. Number six uh, is Rob Zombie's masterpiece, The Devil's Rejects. Uh, you have Sid Haig and Bill Mosley uh, delivering tour de force performances. Uh, it's about this family of serial killers on the run. It's a sequel of sorts to House of a Thousand Corpses, and it's even better than that one. Wow. Yeah, this one, I, I, this is a, a Halloween fixture for me. I watch House of a Thousand Corpses uh, on October 30th and uh, Devil's Rejects on the on Halloween night every year, and I just love it. Number five is the 2002 American remake of The Ring with Naomi Watts. That video that they show is creepy enough, but then the film gets into even darker territory as it goes along. And I'll tell you what, uh, Davy Chase, who plays the little girl, she is one demonic kid in this movie. I mean, uh, wow. I saw this one uh, when it uh, the day it came out in the theater with maybe seven other people in there. And uh, boy, what an unnerving experience. Number four, The Descent, Rob Marshall's uh, tale about these six women who go uh, in on an underground cave exploration, uh, only to find that they're not entirely alone. Even before these creatures show up, these sort of subterranean bat-like uh, creatures, uh, the movie gets you on edge because it's such a claustrophobic feel. Um, the scenes where these women are squeezing through these tight spots, and boy, it's it's just such a, a lot of suspense and, and just very well made. Uh, another one I caught in the theater for uh, its opening weekend, and um, it's another great experience. Okay, uh, number three is Inside. Uh, this is another French film about a pregnant woman who's stalked by someone from her past. You know, in a word, wow. You know, the French have really turned out some great horror films, uh, the new millennium, and this is the best. It's uh, inside. Okay, my second is a Swedish film called Let the Right One In. It's about a young female vampire and this troubled boy that she befriends and uh, when she moves into this apartment complex. Uh, forget the remake with Chloe Grace Moretz. It was good. I'm not going to take that away from it. It was a good movie. But the original approaches perfection, and it really does. I mean, this is one of my all-time favorite movies, to be honest with you. And then number one, which is also, by default, one of my all-time favorites, is Juan. I'll tell you what. Uh, for me, this is the scariest ghost movie I've ever seen. There are moments in this film that have stayed with me, and I still get chills when I think of that woman uh, crawling down those stairs, making that noise. It scared me more than any film on this list, so by default... I have to put it in my number one position of the new millennium. So there, I, I covered a lot of uh, films there. Probably did so maybe a little too quickly. This probably could have been a longer segment. I'm trying to keep it brief for Jay, though, to sort of edit into another episode. And if you have any recommendations, any suggestions, any comments, please pass them along. You could just leave a comment right on the uh, right on the webpage. Talk to you later. Jay of the Dead's Beast Okay, for this episode's edition of Jay of the Dead's Beastly Freaks, I've got this flick for you from the United Kingdom. It's called Storage 24, and it's from 2013. Now, this is set in England where a military plane crashes, and it turns out that this was a government plane, of course, and it was carrying very sensitive cargo. Or in other words, it had a freaking alien beastly freak in a crate, which escapes after the crash happens. <laughs> okay, so... This is good stuff, right? Yes. And then it goes and it hides inside of this 24-7 storage unit facility called Storage 24. And this is one of those nicer 
storage units where they actually have a guard on duty and it's like all the units are housed inside of a giant warehouse. So it's like a big warehouse type place. And this alien gets inside there and because it's a national security breach here, the building gets locked down and all the people who were inside there cannot escape. There's no way out. So they're stuck inside with the alien. <laughs> and there are some people inside there, particularly this group of co-eds, these men and women who are dealing with a messy breakup between two of the group members there. And in the first kill of the movie, the dog dies, okay? And the only reason I mention that, just so you know, is because Dr. Walking Dead has taught us that you can tell whether a horror film is serious or not depending on whether they kill the dog. <laughs> so there's your answer for this one. And the first kill happens off screen, but you do get some good aftermath gore from this. And really, the film does a surprisingly good job with the gore overall. They really try to make an effort to give you some gross scenes, and so I admired it for that. The creature itself looks pretty decent. I guess I'd call it a poor man's alien. And what I mean by that is, as in Ridley Scott's Alien from 1979. But the problem is, the eyes of the creature and then the top of its head... Those two portions are very mask-looking. You know, that was my complaint with um, hypothermia, same thing. But this alien does have really creepy-looking legs, and it has a very freaky mouth, for sure. But the best part to me is how tall it is. I'd guess it's about, I don't know, eight or nine feet tall, and it kind of seems to be of a, a bug persuasion. Now, this movie does one of the things that I really love in horror, which is it shows the hero in grave danger, particularly when the hero has no idea of the danger. Now, I love that every single time. A really prominent example that comes to mind is in 28 Days Later when <laughs> the Killian Murphy character wakes up and he's just wandering around and he goes into that church and he is in dire danger, but he has no clue of that. Well, the same thing happens here. And I love that every time because it's a great way to generate suspense when our protagonists are wandering into this terrible situation. They're completely vulnerable, completely unaware. That generates excitement and suspense in me every single time. So note the filmmakers about that. <laughs> I also appreciate how the lead character in this, our hero, is a black dude a la Night of the Living Dead, same kind of thing. And so I think it's good to see an African-American, you know, in a role like that because, I don't know, it's surprising still, even today, how rarely that happens. Anyway, Storage 24 for me is a 5.5. That's in the rental range for sure. It's not bad at all. It's just a little below average for me. And the good news is Storage 24 is currently streaming on Netflix Watch Instantly at the time this episode releases. So that's Storage 24 from 2013. Okay, now I've got a horror film for you here. This movie that I'm about to review is my big pick for this episode. It is my recommendation for episode 3. This is an obscure gem that I found from 2011 called The Hike. It's another horror flick out of the UK. And the first thing I love about it is that it reminds me a little bit of The Descent which is in my top 10, by the way, because it's about a group of these girls. I think it's like five girlfriends who want to get away and enjoy nature together. They want to go on this hike deep into the woods. But once they get out there, they fall prey to considerable unpleasantness. <laughs> just, 
So, you know, unlike The Descent, though, I will say this movie is set 100% in reality, which I always appreciate, but that means that there are no beastly freaks in this movie, unfortunately. But I also like realism, so that's fine with me. You can't have it all. But still, The Hike is what this year's Black Rock movie tried to be, or at least should have been, or could have been. Um, I was really disappointed in Black Rock. But the hike pulled off what I was looking for. And so, yeah, I'd say it's twice as good as Black Rock. So if you're going to see one of these women out in the wilderness camping and hiking and trying to survive, then this is definitely the one you'd pick. And here's what else that, that I'd say you need to know about the hike. Number one, it has a great snappy pace to it. Even the dialogue appears or seems like it's been edited to keep the tempo of the film moving along. And so the pacing reminds me of just like, you know, if you've ever like put a boat, like a little paper boat on a stream and just watch it take off, that's kind of how this, this movie works. I know that's a weird metaphor for a horror podcast, but <laughs> it's what came to mind. And it opens with a kill scene of characters that we don't know. So it's one of those where they want to get your attention at the start. So we know that there's a danger out there. And then it begins again with the story of the characters that we actually end up following. And that's fine when it does that. I mean, that's fine for me when movies go that route. And the characters are pretty good too. I mean, you've got a a good mix in these women. You've got a prissy model type. And she's really not into the, you know, the woodsy thing. And then you got at least one girl, if not two, who have been in the military and they're trained and they can, you know, they're good at fighting and survival. They can hold their own. And so, of course, that comes in handy. And the hike does take a little bit of time. I mean, despite the great pace, it takes a little bit of time to get rolling. But for me, this is one of those films whose investment in that time really pays off because once it starts cruising, you are on the ride. And this film gets pretty hardcore. I mean, it's intense. Let me just say that. I mean, it's legitimately a horror movie. And at times, it's a little bit tough to watch, too. I mean, it has violence against women, and it really doesn't hold back. And in fact, I was surprised quite a few times about where it went. The hike is savage and brutal. And I was most pleased with the ending. And don't worry, I'm not going to spoil anything because you got to see this movie. But as it winds up, You're sure that this movie is going to end conventionally, right? But the screenwriter, they were not lazy with this movie. It has a great ending. So before I end up overselling it to you, I just, I want to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed the ride for this movie and I'm rating it an 8 out of 10 and I'm telling you to buy it. It's good stuff. And that's The Hike from 2011, written and directed by Rupert Bryan. All right, now, by contrast to The Hike, which I reviewed earlier in this episode, I'm sad to tell you about a huge disappointment that I had with a movie called Nailbiter from 2013. Now, I found this movie in one of my favorite ways to happen onto horror films, which is by watching a good trailer. And I rented something else. I think it was Killer Holiday, which unfortunately I'll be talking about later. And I saw the trailer for Nailbiter, and I knew right away that I had to watch this movie. I had to see it because, well, first of all, it is a beastly freak movie. So I should say that right up front. And check out this premise. It just doesn't get any better. You've got this mom 
and three daughters who live in the Midwest, a small town in eastern Kansas. And as the film opens, a tornado is coming their way. But on that same day, the husband or the father of the family is returning home from the war in the Middle East, and they really want to be there at the airport to greet him. And so they actually drive toward the tornado, hoping that they'll just kind of miss it on their way to the airport. So already here, just taking a break here from the premise, we've established some decent character motivation, which I always appreciate, because horror movies are famous for having characters do stupid things that don't make sense. Well, these characters are doing a stupid thing, but it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, you can understand. And, you know, I admit the flight probably would have been delayed or canceled anyway, but at least they tried to make these actions seem like they were necessary. Needless to say, they encounter the tornado, that's not a spoiler, and they end up running and hiding in the basement of some random house along the way. Well, something ferocious is around that house out in the yard, and it may also be down in the basement. And so they basically get trapped in the basement, and that's all I'm going to reveal to you at this point. It sounds like I've told you a lot, but that's all that really that the trailer gives you anyway. And that's the premise. And unfortunately, that's kind of where it stops. But just let's just admire that premise real quick. Because <laughs> I want to emphasize this situation they were in. They were worried about a number of things. They are worried about not being there when the father gets off the plane. They were worried about being killed by a tornado. They're worried about being stuck in this creepy basement. And then they have some kind of beastly freak situation to deal with. And so that's a killer premise. But as I said, that's about as far as they go. It takes about 55 minutes until you see anything. Now, the beastly freak looks good. It's actually scary. And it's actually a spin on a fairly common monster, which I won't reveal here because I guess that's supposed to be part of the surprise. But let me just let me just tell you right here. Don't get your hopes up because you're going to be disappointed. They don't do this monster any justice. And they don't really show anything at all for that matter. There's hardly any action. The movie feels a lot more like a Goosebumps episode. And seriously, if your kid watches Goosebumps, he or she might be able to handle Nailbiter. Now, the layout of the basement isn't clear. And that's another problem because in this, I, I don't know, it, you almost need to understand where the action is happening. And because you don't understand the layout of the basement they're in, that's problematic. And then there is this terrible A-team sequence with a military march music going on and they're building and preparing and it's so lame. <laughs> it kind of just seems like a movie that was made for like 13-year-olds or something. But anyway, despite having a great premise and a convincing trailer, Nailbiter is not a nailbiter at all. It's weak sauce. I'm calling it a 3 out of 10 and I'm telling you to avoid it. Next, Josh, if you have time, I want to talk to you about um, why in the heck <laughs> do you think that there was only one new widespread horror movie release in theaters for October 2013? Um, well, I mean, I know practically why, but I don't know if it, I don't know. I don't know what led to those. Would you want to hear my theory and yeah, you could bounce off that? Okay. Um. I actually, I have two articles here of people who give their theories, but I'm going to start off here with mine. It's very simple to me. Uh, studios, okay, they knew ever since, what, um, what was it, 2000? It'd be about the past eight years. You mm -hmm. had two major horror franchises that would dominate the market during October. You had Saw for all those years, and then right. you had Paranormal Activity, which took over after that. 
Right. And so Paranormal Activity 5, this new one, was slated for this October. And so I think studios saw that and they're like, okay, Paranormal Activity again. And they just released it other times and they backed off the month. So when right. when Paranormal Activity 5 got bumped to January then, we were just kind of left empty-handed. And right. I, I think that's what happened there. Now, I'll talk about what, what we could do about this in the future, but do you think that's accurate? Do you think that's what happened? I think that's one of the major reasons, and I think that in combination with the fact that they had films like You're Next, that they thought, you know, this could do well in a bigger, more mainstream audience than just, you know, Halloween time. This is a good enough movie that this might have legs if we can release it, you know, to a broader audience. I think they had a few of those this year with The Purge and movies they thought they could possibly get out to more people. And, you know, there were a lot of good horror movies this year, just not this October, right? Yeah, yeah. There are actually um, a lot of the year. Um, we're going to, one of the articles I'm going to be quoting from, he gives, he cites a couple of examples. But yeah, that's a great point. And, and they even give theories about why they tested these other times of year but for right and, and as a filmmaker you might really take issue with this okay so okay so i just want to tell you to buckle up for what i'm about to say but here goes so what can we do about this well the paranormal activity franchise to me has run its course and don't get me wrong i love found footage and overall i mean just generally speaking i like the franchise particularly yeah. one and three but you know, this new one's supposed to be great, though, isn't it? I, people are saying that, but from the trailer, I am unimpressed, and I have like no hope. I mean, after four, because I didn't like four that much, I'm like, oh come on, they're gonna they're gonna do something. They've got to. They've got to do something major and something different for the yeah. fifth movie. And when I saw the trailer, I'm like, oh boy. So <laughs> here's what I think that we can do to invest in and save the Halloween season of October 2014. If we totally shun <laughs> Paranormal Activity 5 in January. Oh, wow. No, I know this is mean, but but hear me out, though. To, to ensure that the franchise dies, which I think it needs to die. Well, now, understand, I haven't seen it yet, but like I said, it doesn't look like anything new. And that way, if the other studios see that this franchise dies, then they'll be willing, maybe, to program their horror releases for the October spots again. And, you know, because this year you had that threat of paranormal activity and then the Carrie remake and that just scared everybody off. So, um, can I, can I, can I suggest an alternative <laughs> to this point? I knew you were going to say, well, one last, let me just say one last thing. I'll just tell the listeners. I mean, of course we're going to review it. And so if it's something that needs to be seen or it's deserving, we'll definitely tell everybody, but okay. But go ahead, Josh, you're the filmmaker. Tell us how you feel about this. <laughs> Terrible. How about instead of that? <laughs> How about searching out an obscure horror film, be it at Sundance or Slamdance, something throughout the beginning of the year. Other, There are several horror film festivals, some great ones out there. Um, or look online on stuff that's streaming online and find a gem because they're out there. There are some great undiscovered gems. Find a film that really appeals to you that you think, I would love to see a sequel to this movie. And try to build that film. Try to spread the word on that movie. Write a maybe make a letter campaign around that movie, uh, a Twitter you know slam, and you know start shooting emails at all of the executives to say we want more like this. You know, for me, one of those movies was Sinister. I would have liked to see, and you know, we're getting more, but I 
that's the kind of movie I would have liked to see more of. And so oh, yeah. I, yeah, I, I talked about that movie all year. <laughs> right. It's like all I talked about really, because I wanted to spread the word and try to support a movie that I liked. And I'm not saying obviously vote with your dollars. That's fine. Boycott a movie, but what, you don't know if it's good or not yet. So that's just the only reason I, well, but that's why they have us. So I, like I said, I mean, it's not like we're going to like leave them in the dark because we'll, oh, obviously we'll see it and review it. And if it's something special, I mean, if they trust us, assuming they do, but if they don't, you know, that's fine. Go see it. But I'm just saying if there are people who actually trust our opinion, I know that's, bad movie. that's hard to think about. But if they <laughs> did, if they did, and then we could say, oh, no, no, you got us to go see this in the theater. And one example that happened this year for example, was Insidious Chapter 2. I mean, the first one was like a six. To me, it was okay. Right. But this Chapter 2 was so much fun. So many good jump scares, you guys. Oh, I, I told everybody to go see that in the theater. You know, and it's not like a masterpiece film, but it's just really fun. I'm with you. Yeah. I, I respect what you're saying, Josh, and I know why you're saying it, too. I mean, I think it it's definitely mean-spirited, and it's pretty ferocious to just, like, <laughs> you know, shut down somebody's life work like that. But there are also so many great little movies out there. I mean, Paranormal Activity is a perfect example because everybody passed that movie over. Nobody gave it a shot. It didn't get into any major film festivals. You know, it was a slam dance, which is kind of like the ugly stepchild of Sundance. <laughs> and luckily, the audiences at Slam Dance got behind it, and it was this huge, became this huge phenomenon. Now you can argue, yeah, okay, well, it hasn't been worth you know our time since then but I, still i mean for what that film was when it was made when it came out and the impact it had on the world not just the horror community and even on us i mean we've talked about it you know we were scared to go to sleep after we saw it i mean i think right. it's pretty impressive that a little film like that can have that big an impact and it's because people got behind it yeah yeah. It didn't have a chance in hell. It wasn't it wasn't slated to be the next big thing until the audiences embraced it. Okay. And like I said, I re I appreciate everything you're saying and I agree and really with you. Saw is the same way. Saw was another little independent film right. that never should have seen the light of day. These aren't big studio projects that are being thrust upon us. <laughs> they are now. Right. But at the time, you know, those were movies that were really labors of love and hard fought battles to even get anybody to see them in the first place. Well, I definitely agree with you fundamentally. Okay. But just, and I don't mean to sound cynical, but honestly, you, you gave a couple of examples, but how many, how many of us out there do you think, I mean, do you really think that we can make a difference? Jason, <laughs> the biggest two, you said it yourself, the biggest two horror franchises for the last eight years were small little independent films that only got where they got because of word of mouth. That's a fact. Mm. All right. Well, I, okay. I hope you're right then. So, so how is that though? I mean, so you're thinking, cause what I'm worried about here is dissemination of responsibility. In other words, you have right. this whole huge crowd of, of people who are fans and if they pick like, you know, 20 different movies to back, then you just got this very lukewarm support of each one. So we need to like get behind a specific oh, film. So you're, oh, we're doing like a organized campaign here. Well, it's in order to get because my objective here is to get October 2014 back to having some options so people can go see some horror movies in theater for Halloween. But again, that's not going to happen just because we this 
Paranormal Activity 5, that doesn't make another great movie suddenly appear. It maybe puts people on the lookout for one. But if we find a great movie that's out there and we help get that to a major audience, the way Paranormal Activity was discovered in January in Utah, you know, in a little tiny ballroom at a crappy hotel that's normally not used for showing movies, <laughs> and that audience found that movie and started spreading the word, that by that next October was ready to hit theaters in a huge way, right? And that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe, I don't know how we organize, maybe us as a podcast, we help organize that campaign as a fight, but I think it just starts with searching out good stuff and searching out stuff that that speaks to you, that impacts you when you see it, you know, and, and then telling somebody else. Yeah, and I agree with that, and I think that's why they listen to podcasts like this. I mean, hopefully, and that's our objective here, but... Um, I, you know, I just, I think we have to get these juggernauts, especially these old over the hill, tired juggernauts like paranormal activity. We need to get them out of the way or other places are just going to be too scared to fill the October bill just like they did this year. And that's, that's reasonable, but let's wait until we see if it's good. Okay. Well, let's go to, um, so at the week.com is a writer named Scott Meslow and he actually gave his theory on this and, um. He, he was saying that, you know, he referred to last year in his article. He said, you know, it wasn't always like this. Last year, horror fans got to choose between Sinister, Paranormal Activity 4, Silent Hill, Revelation 3D. And then in 2011, you had The Thing, you had Paranormal Activity 3, Human Centipede 2, full sequence, right? And you had stuff like that. But he gave five reasons why he thought that, you know, it just it fell apart for this October. And he said, number one, Many new horror movies have migrated to video on demand. So he gave that as an option, which, you know, I think that's true. And then he said, number two, there isn't a big Hollywood horror franchise right now. And, um, you know, he also cited that the the delay of Paranormal Activity 5 just took it out of commission. Well, not only that, but I mean, really, Paranormal Activity, I don't know the details. I haven't been actually following the productions that closely, but the same company that made Insidious 2 also made Sinister, also made Paranormal Activity. This is just one guy's production company that's helping get all these movies out to the public, you know, The Conjuring. This is all one guy. Um, So we have him really to thank for the majority of the horror movies that are seeing the light of day, the ones that we like and the ones that we don't like. Yeah, well, that right there, I mean, and I bet a lot of the listeners are wondering this. Why is it just one guy? Why? What? What's with that? I mean, whatever he's doing is working. Why? No one. What? No. One, I don't know why no one else is trying it. I'm not sure. But mm. yeah, that's kind of disturbing to me, actually. I mean, because if this really is the most popular genre and one of the most profitable, then it's amazing to me that it's just not just the industry isn't replete with options. And I mean, I just I don't get that. Right. Is it because it's a largely like a, a, a low budget, like indie type of industry genre? I mean, that guy, I know he's an independent filmmaker and I know he talked about, you know, James Wan, you know, has said he's never going to make another horror film after The Conjuring. And this guy is telling, saying, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to convince him to do it. But, you know, he was saying James Wan's making the next Fast and the Furious movie for 10 times what he's ever this guy this producer has ever spent on a movie and i'm sorry i don't have his name in front of me i'm gonna look it up really quick while we're talking but um yeah you know it's uh you know it's a genre that doesn't get a lot of love i mean we've always known that you know it's not until it's a huge hit that people pay attention right yeah 
Okay, well, well, this um Scott guys, his number three reason is he said a bunch of successful wide release horror films have already been released in 2013. Right, that's what I was kind of saying. Yeah, exactly. You you alluded to this for sure. He said because in June you had the Purge, and then and that actually beat the internship, and then in July you had the Conjuring, which um <laughs> which really did well up against Red Two and then R.I.P.D. By the way, <laughs> R.I.P.D. is so terrible. Never, never watch it, you guys. Anyway, and then, yeah, the Insidious Chapter 2. And um, so, that, I mean, that was pretty good, too. So, um, in terms of, like, it's box office hall. In terms of entertainment, it was really awesome. So, number four was, the award season is unusually overstuffed this year. And this is interesting, because he said... He cited film. You got Captain Phillips. You got Twelve Years a Slave. You got The Fifth Estate, and all those were opening, you know, against Carrie. Right. And then you had Ridley Scott's film, The Counselor, which is also terrible, but you know that was in there too. So a lot of these Oscar hopefuls were kind of getting in the way, and that's probably true too. And then this is a really interesting reason that I probably never would have thought of, but he said number five, Halloween falls on a Thursday in 2013. And so he thought that that really kind of wrecked, you know, because it wasn't like a weekend type of thing where it was part right. of your Halloween festivities. But, you know, the day after, I don't know. I I don't know if that I would bother see me. That. The day after Halloween, you're not really, you know, the majority of people aren't going to go see a Halloween movie. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that up and just see what the, the listeners think, actually, because. Here's the thing, if if people were kind of, if your eyes gla- glazed over during this conversation, I just want to say this. Um, I do think that it's our job as the fans of the genre to try to help keep, as Greg Amortis always says, help keep horror alive, right? I mean, we have to, I think, help keep the art um, moving along. I mean, d- don't you agree with that, Josh, that, that, that actually the, the people who consume a certain genre or a certain type of filmmaking are really responsible for supporting its life, right? Hollywood is all about money. They're going to do whatever makes money. So if we support these movies in theaters, then they're going to, you know, and they make money, they're going to make more. If we torrent them and they don't make any money, then they're not going to make more. Then it's going to, then we're going to be stuck with little independent films that are discovered in slam dance. You know, Uh, the studios are going to make them if they're making money, but that's, that's it. That's right. Okay. So, so this guy's name is Jason Blum or Jason Bloom. I'm not sure exactly which one. Um, oh, but yeah. he owns Blumhouse Productions or Blumhouse Productions potentially. I think it's Blumhouse and Blum, is, I yeah. think. And um, yeah, I mean, he did Paranormal Activity in 2007, Paranormal Activity 2 and 3, Sinister Lords of Salem, Paranormal Activity 4, Dark Skies, The Purge, Insidious 2. Um, so he's doing <laughs> a huge amount of the horror movies that – Wow. Coming out right now. And um, he, he actually, I hope you'll link your articles that you, that you touched on in the show notes, Jason. I sure will. And I would also say to link this other podcast. Um, it's one I listen to a lot because I'm a filmmaker. So it's about the movie business. Um, and in fact, it's called The Business. But it, there's a great interview with this guy that I think horror fans who are interested in this side of the conversation may take interest in as well. Um, the episode's called The Man Who Makes Low-Budget, High-Concept Horror Hits. And he kind of talks about his whole um, approach to the genre. And it's a very interesting stuff. Um, 
Nice. So I will give that to you, and hopefully we can send some people that way if if they're interested in continuing that conversation. And if they're not, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'll I'll definitely link that because the business I listen to that podcast too, and it's excellent. So yeah, definitely check that out. And I do want to give a shout out to Scott Meslow. And the other article I didn't get to touch on it because we've already spent enough time on it. But the other article was written by Matt Barone, and he made a lot of good points too. So that's going to be there. Both of those in the show notes for you guys to check those out. And by the way, speaking of all this, <laughs> um, the Purge uh, slash film dot com announced that the Purge two, you know, well, the Purge sequel right. ha- has a summer release date already slated for wow. for twenty fourteen. So it's going to be summer, and it's going to be June twenty fourteen. And I actually like the Purge. We'll be talking about that um, in future episodes. But again. You know, I, I mean, I guess there's the the impatient part of me. <laughs> I'm excited that I was going to get here sooner rather than later, but mm-hmm. but that's June and not October. Well, one of the investors, uh, Ross Harris, was a meat packer, so he brought all these entrails. It was pretty rough. That was all real stuff, real intestines, real livers, cow livers. wanted to push the envelope let's see let's see what we can do with this you just bring out buckets of stuff and people i'm telling you boy people that come to be zombies are you know they really dedicate they'll dig into that stuff and chew on it i never get me to do that so (laughs) and that was another clip from the 2013 documentary birth of the living dead by rob coons Okay, well, my next mini-review almost isn't even worth talking about, but, you know, I'm Jay of the Dead, so this is what I do, and I'm actually here to warn you about stuff like this. So, (laughs) there's this movie called Killer Holiday, and I want you to remember that title only long enough to avoid it. This is one of the worst horror movies I've seen in a long time. Now, Killer Holiday is a 2013 movie. It hit DVD release on November 5th, and it's currently available at Redbox, but trust me, save your buck 28. I wouldn't even use a free rental on this. So do me a favor, if you're near a computer, and pull up the cover art on Killer Holiday. When you look at it, you'll see that there's a pretty good-looking cover with what appears to be a killer clown in the background, and it's not the kind from outer space. (laughs) Anyway, now, unless I've missed something... I never even saw this character in this whole movie. And so take a good look at it right now on that cover because that's all you're going to get of that good-looking character there. (laughs) There is no killer clown that I saw. And instead, this movie gives you a pretty boy GQ model who doesn't like his name. Oh boy. Okay, so here's the premise. you got a group of teenagers. They go to this old abandoned amusement park somewhere off Route 66. And they're stalked by a psychotic killer. And that's the premise. And by the way, it takes 30 minutes just to even get to that amusement park. So I just thought I'd tell you that up front. And instead of getting to the point, you know, part of that 30 minutes is you have to deal with this introduction that is extremely off-putting and irritating. They use lots of stylistic and just obnoxious camera work. It's black and white. It's washed out. It calls attention to itself. They replay certain shots. It flashes scenes. I mean, I could barely tolerate it. I had trouble sitting through the beginning of this movie because right away, it made me hate it with just the intro. (laughs) 
And so get this, once they get to the Funhouse place, I mean, I know you guys are probably thinking, well, I'm being really critical of this movie, right? It's kind of unfair. I'm sure Josh is thinking that because Josh always gives me a hard time because he always reminds me that, hey, this film that you're ripping apart here, that's um supposed to provide dinner for somebody's kids, right? Because Josh is a filmmaker, so he appreciates that predicament. But let me just give you this, okay? I, I want to convince you all of where I'm coming from. Once you get to the Funhouse place, you have to deal with dialogue, like what I'm about to play for you. I actually recorded it for you because you've got to hear this for yourself. Because if I described it, you wouldn't believe me. And so I haven't doctored this in any way. I haven't repeated anything. This comes straight from the movie. This is an excerpt from Killer Holiday. Guys! Guys, look! Guys! Guys, look! Guys! 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 Guys, look! Guys! 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 Okay, look. (laughs) So, guys. Guys, look. There are many awkward moments like this in this movie. But honestly, it does not work as a so bad it's good kind of movie either. So don't even bother with that. And there are a few, like, sexy scenes or intended to be sexy that are just awkward and embarrassing. And basically, this movie is like a bunch of high school kids who got together, and they didn't know anything about horror, but they had an okay cinematographer, and then they made a horror movie. That's what it seems like happened here. So, bottom line, Killer Holiday from 2013 is awful. This is the movie that I want to make my friend Jeff Hammer watch as payback for subjecting me to bad Milo. (laughs) So yeah, Killer Holiday is frustrating, irritating, and stupid. So 1.5 out of 10. Avoid it. Okay, and for my final review for this episode, I've got to tell you about Hayride from 2012. Now, you've probably seen this at Redbox. It's a low-budget indie slasher flick, and it's worth talking about. Hayride is set in southern Alabama where there's this big-time killer who's being transported, but he escapes custody. Okay, I won't go into how that happens. I don't want to tell every detail of the movie, right? Well, anyway, this local college kid, he comes home, you know, to his hometown here for Halloween, and he brings his girlfriend, because in his hometown, his uncle is a huge Halloween fan, and he puts on this haunted hayride attraction every year, and it's a big hit. Well, this family even has, like, characters, and one of them is based on a true person from their community's dark past called Pitchfork. Well, remember, you have this killer who was being transported who escaped in the same vicinity. And so you can see where this is going, right? So that's a very fun horror movie premise where, you know, we're seeing more and more of this lately where you've got characters who think what they're witnessing is all fake. But in actuality, it's real. <laughs> and I kind of love that when that happens. Hayride is set on Halloween, and I'm always baffled, actually, on why more horror movies don't have an explicit Halloween backdrop like this one does. So I I give props, you know, to writer-director Taryn Parsons for that. Thank you for making us another Halloween movie. And as I said, this movie appears to be very low budget, and it often looks amateurish, but it's obvious that the filmmakers, and specifically Taryn Parsons, It's obvious that he's a horror fan. And more importantly, it's obvious that he's a slasher fan. The killer is really big. I love the casting for this guy. 
And um, he uses all sorts of classic implements for killing, like an axe, sledgehammer, pitchfork, you know, like I said, lots of good tools like that. And they even have a campfire telling sequence in this movie. So, you know, you can't go wrong. So I got to tell you, Hayride has great heart. It does many things right. It has great casting. The acting is just fine for the most part. It has a very unlikely but a passable story. It has good characters. It's set on Halloween and it's obviously made by horror fans. And it has a good slasher character who uses great slasher weapons. But the problems to this movie are it's just not strong at the script stage. And the kills, like they don't really show those. They cut away and I'm sure that's a budget issue. But here's the biggest challenge I think that this film couldn't ultimately overcome. Because the sets within the film are homespun, meaning the characters create this Halloween hayride attraction, because those are homespun, well, it gives you the feeling, at least, it makes you think like the whole movie looks homespun. You see what I'm saying? So that's problematic. And what they needed to do to rectify this is the kills needed to be above and beyond You know, they needed to be really set in the real world and they needed to show us that in order to pull this off. I mean, I think if they would have had a little more budget, I think it would have been tremendous. So here's my suggestion. You give these same people some more money, give them a script doctor maybe, and then you'll have something. And and I'd say, you know, I think they should check out, you know, do some analysis of Hitchcock and see how he builds suspense because I think that there could have been a little more suspense in this as well. But another thing I really liked about this movie, just, you know, because I don't want to be down on it, because I I do, I do see a lot of, um, I see the diamond in the rough here. I like how after everything is over, they actually show like the falling action and the aftermath. And that's something that is rare in not just horror movies, but movies in general, where they show how everything pans out afterward. I really like that. So anyway, bottom line, I'm giving Hayride a four out of ten. But it's a four with heart, you guys. Guys, look. (laughs) Just kidding. And I still think you should rent it. And if you're a slasher fan, and you're very lenient and forgiving to independent horror cinema, I think you'll like it. I just want to tell you, too, if you end up watching this movie, you should stick around through the credits because it does have a very slight stinger at the end. And one last note about this movie. A sequel was slated, and it was actually supposed to be released on DVD this week couple of days ago according to imdb but i haven't been able to find it anywhere yet but i will be seeing it and i think that's the point here even though i gave it a four i still said rent it and i'm definitely going to be following up with the sequel and i do like the actress that's in this as well and she's returning for the sequel so i think it has good characters and it's a good slasher killer here and i hope that we see this character do something i hope he turns into something Hey, it's Wolfman Josh, and it's that time where I subject myself to terrible monster movies so you don't have to. It's Destroy All Monsters. On this edition of Destroy All Monsters, I'm going to give you two somewhat Thanksgiving-related monster movies to avoid. Uh, Now, I should say, both of these are kind of cult sensations, so I may be taking the unpopular opinion, but for me, they're just basically too terrible to really enjoy. Uh, Both of them are available currently on Netflix and on DVD. 
Um, Thanks Killing is the first film we're going to talk about. It is a 2008 film, technically, I think on IMDb it might be listed as 2009, filmed by Jordan Downey. Um, And the Netflix synopsis is this. While on their way home from Thanksgiving break, five college kids run afoul of a homicidal turkey that wants them dead. As the cursed bird hunts them down one by one, the survivors scramble to find a way to defeat the possessed creature. Now, this is a terrible movie, and it's supposed to be. Like I said, it's kind of a cult classic, I guess, for as much of a classic could be from 2008. It's a, it's a beloved film by people who like schlock, and I count myself among people who like schlock, but also I just think the production values are so bad, and I think it's not really that funny. I don't think it's as funny as it's intended to be. And I think it's a movie that a lot of people would say it's bad in a good way. Um, but for me, yeah, it's, uh, it's just not that entertaining. I will say thanks killing three, which is actually the second movie in the franchise looks a lot better. And I'm actually looking forward to seeing thanks killing three to me. That looks like the type of movie they were trying to make with thanks killing and didn't quite pull off. Of course, the sequel has a much bigger budget. It was shot for about $100,000 as opposed to 4000 so you can understand why the production values would have taken a jump. And yes, I can see why this would be a movie people would love to hate and hate to love. You've basically got this terrible practical effect turkey. It's a foul-mouthed foul, and it's intentionally bad, but I'm not sure we should give it points for that. It's shot on this really crappy quality video looks like hell the jokes are bad the majority of the acting is horrendous so i'm going to go ahead and give this one a two and say avoid it but if you do want to take your chances there are very few thanksgiving themed horror movies thanks killing is available on netflix currently through the dvd mailing program up next is an even more beloved film that i like even less and that is poultrygeist Night of the Chicken Dead, which is a 2006 trauma film directed by Lloyd Kaufman. Now, obviously, there are a lot of trauma fans out there, and I myself, out of the hundreds of movies they've released, like several of them. So I'm not someone who dismisses trauma out of hand, um, but I will say this is not a good movie. (laughs) And uh, again, maybe I shouldn't be surprised that the screen is often filled with poop and genitals, and uh, it's a musical, which is one of its biggest downfalls. But basically, this features characters named things like Arby and Wendy and Carl Jr. working at a chicken shack at a fast food restaurant. And you've got this guy, Arby, who's kind of your protagonist, and his ex-girlfriend, Wendy, who is left for college and become a lesbian and is back to protest the very restaurant he's working at, which happens to be built on an Indian burial ground, which leads to kind of a series of sleepaway camp-esque murders in the beginning and an eventual chicken zombie apocalypse, I guess. Um, I don't know if you call them chicken zombies or zombie chickens. I guess chicken zombies because they're humanoid, but with a giant chicken look. Um, And they're funny and weird and disturbing and everything they're meant to be. So in some ways, this movie perfectly hits the mark it's aiming for, but um, that mark is so low for me (laughs) that I just have a hard time recommending it. Additionally, this was a pretty big budget movie for Troma. I think the budget was around $400,000, and it looks like the box office was in the $20,000 range. So Unless it's doing really good on DVD, I can't imagine that this was much of a success, despite the fact that, like I said, it has been kind of a 
cult hit, and it's one of the most critically acclaimed trauma films um, that's ever existed. The production qualities here are low, but unlike Thanksgiving, they're kind of still something you can revel in. There's something about the trauma vibe that I just love, and there's plenty here to like in the movie. It is pretty funny, but... I don't know if I'm just getting old or what, but the vulgarity here is just on a whole other level. And I've just kind of seen a lifetime's worth of things going in and out of butts. I don't need to see any more of that. And and really, the musical element detracts so much for me that I have a hard time recommending this to anybody. So I will give Poultry Geist, Night of the Chicken Dead, a 3.5 and say avoid it. But again, for those who wish to defy me it is streaming currently on netflix so you can find it there if you wish so that's all i've got for our thanksgiving edition of destroy all monsters maybe this time next year we'll cover thanks killing three and hopefully i'll like that a lot better so let's move into the listener feedback and i just got to start out by saying first of all sincerely i am blown away by the amount of feedback we've gotten and the quality of feedback i mean i know radio people and podcast people always say the listeners are great and you guys make it worthwhile and that's why we do it. But I'm just like, I'm seriously beside myself. I can't even believe this. What do you think about that? I mean, I think people say that for a reason because it's really, you know, it makes putting all this effort into something that we do for free worthwhile when people respond to it and you can have a dialogue and that makes it a lot more fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Josh, I have to commend you. I would say, especially over on movie podcast weekly, our uh, sister podcast, I would award you with the, uh, I mean, you are the best like host, like answerer of comments and stuff. You're, <laughs> you're very attentive and good about that. And I, I just wanted to tell listeners here that like, we're very serious about keeping up on this and answering it. I've actually, I've started this, this sounds nerdy, but I've started this archive of listener feedback so I can keep, keep track of it and everything and try to make sure we get everybody answered. So just nerd, so, total nerd. So just, <laughs> just so you guys know. Um, if you leave the comment there on on the website, then a lot of times, and Josh is really good about this, we'll just answer right there you right. Know, in the comment section. But you can send emails to, you can send voicemails, whatever you want. Um, we'll try to get back to you either on the comment section or here on the podcast. If you verbally. send an email, uh, if you send an email, it's probably more likely we'll discuss it on the show. And if you post on the website, you'll probably get a quicker answer. But we might may not discuss it on on the podcast. So. Yeah, yeah, but we we like to try to, you know, bring it to a like a community conversation as much as right. possible. So, uh, you know, I'd encourage the other listeners to comment on the stuff that's on the website too cuz we've got good stuff on there. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, let's jump into this cuz we've got a, a ton to cover and it's it's good stuff. So, first of all, I just wanted to send a thank you out to the unknown murderer on air because he actually left us an iTunes review. And it was similar to the email that we read last time. So I won't read it again, but I do want to thank you, Unknown Murderer, for doing that because those, <laughs> those those iTunes reviews are seriously what help us the most as far as like getting exposure and stuff. And and by the way, listeners, if you haven't read his blog post on our site, he wrote a little thing about John Carpenter's Halloween. It's called Between the Sheets, and it's amazing. Have you gotten to read that yet, Josh? I will have by the time this posts, but I have not yet. I just had a really crazy week. Okay, well, it is worth your time. 
And yeah, I mean, I'm sure everybody's seen Halloween, so don't worry about it. But if you haven't seen Halloween, it does have spoilers in it. So make sure you see Halloween. And by the way, why in the heck haven't you seen Halloween yet? <laughs> <laughs> and then I wanted to address Juan. He um, asked a question about how we'd technically classify John Carpenter's Christine in terms of possession or haunting. And um, he left that comment on episode one. And Josh did a good job answering and I'm going to be writing that answer there, too. So, Juan, you can check that out in the comment boards. And then Austin sent an email, and he titled it Great Debut. And he said, hey, guys, I'm some guy from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I drive a bus for a living, doing long night shifts. I used to listen to the weekly horror show and enjoyed it a great deal. Now I'm even happier to hear Jay of the Dead back on the air with a massive four-plus-hour show. Great stuff from all of you. I really enjoyed Dr. Walking Dead's breakdown of the whole genre, especially the explanation of the uncanny and why we find certain things scary. I won't go on, but just wanted to say it's great to have you back, and I look forward to many more episodes, and maybe Tara Tovey will make an appearance at some point. Rock on, guys. Regards, Austin. So, I just want to thank Austin for that. And uh, by the way, I reached out to Tara Tovey this week. As soon as I got your email, I wrote to him. And I asked him, and he said he totally wanted to be on the show. He couldn't make it this week, but he's going to try to make it on a future episode just for you, cool. Austin. So thanks a lot. Yeah, he, he's really... Uh, he's down in California now, Josh, and he's trying to live the dream. He's trying to break into like the filmmaking and the TV world. I mean, he's actually he's actually doing it down there in L.A. now. Cool. So that's where terror is, you guys, if you're wondering about that. Okay, and then uh, Gary has been writing to us, and... He's become a good friend of mine, I would call him, because we, we correspond a lot through email, and I'm thankful for that. But I wanted to make sure I named off um, Gary's top horror list. He, he said, I listened to all the episodes on Horror Metropolis, and now I'm moving on to the weekly horror movie podcast. And I actually sat down and did my top 13 horror movies last night, and here's how it rolled out. Check this out, Josh. 13. Ready. Okay, I'll just start with 13. I, I like the idea the of 13 because it's unlucky. That sounds great. That's great. That's, That's right. It's just so dangerous. I like that. <laughs> he said, Creep Show. And then Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. From Dusk Till Dawn. Poltergeist. Slither. Tremors. High Tension. Return of the Living Dead. Jaws. Friday the 13th, parts 1 and 2. It's a tie there, he said. Yeah, interesting. Pet Cemetery, Halloween. And Friday the 13th, the final chapter is his number one. Wow. So what do you think about that list? Sounds like sounds like a guy who enjoys the horror comedies. Sounds like he's in it for the fun, fun of it, which is good. Mm -hmm. not, not too many just terrifying movies on there, but a lot of really solid, scary, fun slashers and stuff like that. So yeah. I like that. I like that kind of a list. Yeah, it's a oh, fun list. And, and, what but, was number 13 in? Can you remind me? Creep Show. Okay. I'm not a huge fan of the anthologies, and maybe we'll get to that down the road. Um, but I don't know, for some reason I haven't, there hasn't been really an anthology that's really grabbed me and, and shook me up. So we should definitely address the anthologies because I actually love them, but I think I get why they don't catch on. And I think it just has to do with, you can tell your friend, you're like, I mean, you can tell your friend, okay, I saw this great movie last night about this killer shark, you know, it's trying to eat people, you know, it's like, okay, that's jaws. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but then, but when you're trying to tell like what creep show is, it's like, okay, well, it's a series of things. And in this one little segment, this happens. And then this happens. You know what I mean? I think anthologies are hard to sell to people or even talk yeah. about. And they're so short. Usually you can't really talk much about them. Maybe that's it. But Josh is silent. He's like, well, I think, I think one of the things for me, it's the same problem that I have with short films, first of all, um, because I think it's really hard to actually have an arc within a short film. You just don't have the time to do it. And so most short films are based on almost like the, like the structure of a joke. It has a punchline, right? Yeah. And so, and so it's fun and they can be fun, but there just isn't much substance to them. And so I, I, unless it's really good, I kind of find myself losing interest. And that's the problem with an anthology is you just have short films back to back to back to back. And so it's just like listening to a bunch of jokes, but there's not, there's nothing to really grab onto. The other thing is like, with something like the ABCs of death, when you've got so many to get through, if they're not all working, it can really start to feel like a slog to get through the whole <laughs> bunch. You know, if you're halfway through and bored, you're like, oh, man, I've got 13 letters left. This is going to suck. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I think something like that is, it can be rather hit or miss, you know? And even if I like a bunch of them, I am kind of of the mind, like, I wish I could just get that one on DVD and not have to like, watch all these other ones in order to see it you know well that's what i was gonna say maybe we should do it It would be interesting for us to over time go through all of the horror anthologies because i mean let's face it there's not an innumerable number i'm sure we could eventually do it uh, well i've got a i've got a, actually one i wanted to do when it was my turn to pick a topic which is funny because I, I just said i don't like anthologies and i really don't but i wanted to do urban anthologies because i thought that was interesting to kind of uh, how um like there's been these like anthology films horror anthologies like targeted to black culture and so i thought that was kind of funny maybe like tales from the hood and snoop dogg's hood of horror and stuff like that oh wow yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm with you actually i i think that'd be fun and and it would be interesting to go through and like pick out the very best ones but the only problem with that is i don't really think that people could just like you can't necessarily cherry pick which ones you're going to watch because, you know, you get the whole film and they're all in there. But it would be neat to put yeah. together a killer package, you know, not that we could package it. But I'm just saying, <laughs> say this is the list of the very best short films, you know, but I yeah, think that'd totally. be neat. But anyway, so in other words, bottom line, you're saying you hated Gary's number 13. <laughs> <laughs> it was just an, it wasn't a it wasn't a good one to start with for me because I I immediately had a bias toward it but I did I did like his list solid list there's nothing you can't really argue with anything on this list that that's right and and you know I I agree I he did have a lot of horror comedy in there which typically isn't my thing but in number three he had Pet Cemetery and for me personally overall all things said and done that that's my scariest horror film to mm. me is Pet Cemetery so. Nice. Well done, Gary. All right. And then we got another email. This is from Todd. And Todd wrote, Jay of the Dead, thanks so much for coming back to the podcasting world. You really can't leave this time around. <laughs> I found the weekly horror movie podcast last year, and this was so disappointed <laughs> to find out that you had left the show. The same with Horror Metropolis. So I'm super excited to be in at the beginning of this one. With the exception of some zombie movies, I don't watch horror movies anymore. It was something I let go of because it no longer fit with my personal convictions. However, I love listening to you guys talk about them. It's sort of my way of experience them, experiencing them without sacrificing my convictions. <laughs> 
Anyway, you guys do a great job, and I look forward to the many years of horror movie podcasting. Thanks. Maybe Todd. maybe we need to have a disclaimer at the start of the show, like at the start of Michael Jackson's thriller, where it says, like, despite the, you know, this no way endorses a belief in the occult or whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and then, you know, you you can attest to this, Josh, that when we, we first got together and we were planning this with Kyle, I'm like, you know, I don't I don't want to celebrate evil or like depravity you know i i just it's a fun genre and they're fun movies to watch so i mean i think we're really here to appreciate the genre and the artistic craft of the filmmaking absolutely yeah yeah Yeah, but but i I actually wrote todd a personal email and um, i really respect what he said and everything that he's doing there um and i can relate too because there was actually a time when i didn't watch anything rated r whether it was horror or not and so I read a lot of Roger Ebert's movie reviews, and it was kind of like seeing the movie because he was pretty heavy with his plot description. So, so I I really understand what he said there. That, no, I I actually did a very similar thing to you too. I had a very big religious experience in my life, and uh, when I finished with that, I I went and threw away like half of my DVD col- or half of my VHS collection, I guess at the time. And then about a month later, I was like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. So I started buying them all again on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> um, just- yeah, I went, I went through that stage and I actually had a friend who didn't watch horror movies, but loved hearing about them as well. And I would, we would go on these long walks and, and just like hanging out and I would tell him like tell him the stories, you know, it was like a, it was actually a good practice in storytelling for me, but we'd go on the walk and I'd tell him all of scream one. And then like the next day he'd be like, dude, so what happens in scream two? And so we'd <laughs> not like, we'd go on a walk and I'd tell him the whole story, very detailed and, you know, I dialogue from the movie. I love, funny. I love that. That's hilarious. Um, so I'm realizing something, Josh, it sounds like that you and I are just a couple of backsliders. <laughs> <laughs> Well, since the heat is already on us, Josh, um, so we got one of our listeners, which is a good mutual friend of ours, Hammer, he was kind of calling you out. And so I want you to explain this in case any of the other listeners are going to be calling you out. Um, he had a problem with your... Um, your uh, She-Wolf of London. Yes, yeah, your Destroy All Monsters pick, She-Wolf of London. And so do you want to clear that up for us here? Okay, yeah, Hammer emailed me and was going off because he doesn't think it's his number one because he didn't think it was as bad as I thought it did, which I, I still think he's completely wrong. And if you want, I'll pull up the email and go over our conversation that we had because I think I destroyed him, but (laughs) (laughs) he did, he did catch me on one big thing, which was, I got a major plot point wrong because I haven't seen the movie in a couple of years, frankly, and I was a little ill prepared. And so I had to throw out that recommendation and uh, yeah, I messed, I messed up on one of the, (laughs) one of the plot points. So he, he absolutely was right about that, but I had, I hadn't seen it in a couple of years, but, for good reason, because it's terrible and I would never watch it again. Right. Well, here's the thing. I understood because when he said that and, and said that you hadn't watched it in a while, I'm like, well, that makes sense. If Josh hated this movie so bad and said to avoid it, then he's just living his convictions. See, you re- you're redeemed from the backslider ring. Absolutely. <laughs> but no, that's funny. And I had a question for you, Josh. Um, your Your segment is called Destroy All Monsters. And I actually noticed um, this week that there was a film from 1968 called Destroy All Monsters. Was that film like inspirational of your your segment title? Hmm. I don't know. It's just a thing I've heard a lot. I mean, there was also a Godzilla film that had that carried that title, I believe, as well. Um, and then there's a there's a book <laughs> 
called Destroy All Movies that I'm actually adapting into a documentary. That that movie is about uh, depictions of punk rock culture in movies uh, that one of the guys from the Alamo Drafthouse wrote, and I'm making a documentary based on his book. So I don't know. It's just something that I I like the idea of. It feels punk rock and to me, and it has kind of like these horror roots to it. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where it comes from. Well, honestly, I think we should watch this destroy all monsters because if you pull it up on IMDb, you can see that Godzilla is in fact on the cover and the, the uh, premise is female aliens take control of earth's monsters and presumably Godzilla is in there and begin using them to destroy the human race. So that actually sounds like a killer good film. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I kind of want to approach someday my goal. I mean, I've told people this, I'm a, I'm a documentary filmmaker, but my real love is I would love to make some great horror movies. And one thing I would love to do is appropriate that title the way Quentin Tarantino does with like Inglorious Bastards and make my own movie called Destroy All Monsters. Because I, again, I'm a huge werewolf and zombie and, vampire fan and I want to make a movie that just has some crazy and my favorites of those are like the vampire hunter movies so I want to make a movie kind of in that vein someday don't steal this idea people (laughs) copyright (laughs) trademarked whatever that's right (laughs) I'm your witness on that you said it here first on horror movie podcast okay great this next email comes from Josh not you Wolfman but a different Josh and I gotta say something up front (laughs) I'm, I'm going to call this right now. This guy is totally legit. And I'm serious. You can just tell by his email that he is true blue. He's um, Josh from Des Moines, Iowa. And here's what he wrote. Jay and crew. Glad I found a good replacement for another horror podcast that just ended. I've been watching horror movies for a long time and love the and love some of the same classic movies you guys do. Texas Chainsaw, Evil Dead. There are a few of the newer ones you also mentioned. The Descent. 30 Days of Night. I even got tattoos of some of my favorites, Evil Dead, Texas Chainsaw, The Exorcist, and The Shining. You really can't beat some of the ones that were made in the 70s. It takes a lot to impress me these days. There are a few that have come out lately that I have really enjoyed. Cabin in the Woods was a really fun movie, and so was Tucker and Dale vs. Evil and Zombieland. Controversial choices, all in my opinion. And I am, I'm so impressed too, by the way, that a legit horror guy, because this guy's obviously legit if he has the tattoos and stuff, yep. that, that he likes Cabin in the Woods, which I liked, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, and Zombieland. I think it's so cool that, that he, he digs those. So, because we know some more, some hardcore guys that would probably dismiss stuff like that, is what you're saying. Right, right. And so I really admire that. But anyway, yep. he continues. The Conjuring was a well-made movie, even though I don't think it was anything new. There are other movies that I have enjoyed also. Session 9, Event Horizon, Serpent and the Rainbow are ones that I enjoy also. I love how in-depth you guys get. I'd love to sit down with you guys and <laughs> and shoot the crap about horror movies. I hope I get a chance, but if not, I'll just keep listening to the podcast. Keep it coming, Josh from Des Moines, Iowa. So, what do you think about oh, that, Josh? Josh? Yeah. Good stuff. Good choices again. You know, I I think I can imagine us talking about the serpent and the rainbow and uh, some of those other picks that he mentioned on future episodes of the podcast for sure. So yeah, and maybe we, maybe we should have like a an episode like a live episode where we get listeners bring listeners on and have like a chat room thing going at some point. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd love that. 
That's a good idea. Yeah, and thanks for writing, Josh, and I appreciate it's awesome to have some hardcore fans listening, so we appreciate that. I was a little mixed on Tucker and Dale. I liked how it started a lot. I was cracking up mm-hmm. for the first, like, 15 minutes of it, but I felt like it kind of devolved toward the end. They kind of didn't really know what to do with the idea, I felt like, after a while. But, yeah. And I'm not as I'm not as hot on Zombieland as I know you are, but... Um, yeah, I love it. But I do like those movies. They're all they're all fun movies and watchable for sure. What was the first one he mentioned again? Sorry, I blanked. I know there it's was fine. Tucker, Cabin Tucker and Dale's Zombie. Oh yeah, I did, I did like Cabin in the Woods as well. I think I may have given it a bit of a hard time because I was anticipating it so highly. But um, but I do like that movie. I own it. So well, a lot of horror fans thought the Cabin in the Woods was um, I guess disrespectful or like you know making fun of the genre. But to me, it was a celebration. Of the horror I think genre. it's a bit of both. I mean, I think it it's it's kind of a postmodern critique, and so it bites on the genre a little bit. But it, clearly, it's coming from people who love it as well. Yeah, so. it lovingly bites. I mean, they're good love bites. I mean, I think, um, <laughs> so to speak. Right. I mean, I know a friend of ours, Bill Shetty, doesn't even consider it a horror movie. So, I mean, that's it is controversial in that way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I call it horror for sure. Okay, well, yeah. th- this email comes from Sean, and this is about remakes. His uh, title is Great Show and Question About Remakes. So, hey guys, I love the show. Just finished the second episode and love the chemistry you guys have and how in-depth you all go into the horror genre. I have a question for you all regarding remakes. Remakes can be very hit or miss, mostly miss. However, I'd like to hear from you guys as to what your favorite remakes are and what some of your least favorite are. An example for me, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre remains one of the best and most loved, beloved horror films of all time, and for good reason, but I did enjoy the 2003 remake. I can't, It can't live up to the original, but I thought it was good film on its own. There have been a lot of remakes in recent years with mixed reviews and reception, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. Love the show, Sean. Now, Josh, here's the thing. This is a tremendous question. And this, I think that his, Sean's question actually deserves an entire episode. <laughs> we, I agree. Yeah. Because if not multiple, if not multiple episodes. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. And we should recognize this up front, especially for people who listen to Horror Palace. Horror Palace had a special. It was episode five. And they covered remakes, reboots, and reimagining. And they did a great job. I actually just listened to it this past week. Again, I revisited it because I, I loved it so much. Um, but it just so happens that, um, well, the way it worked on Horror Palace is that when they did a special, you could basically, you know, they'd throw it out there and you'd sign up and if you wanted to be in it. Well, it just so happened that Dr. Shock, Wolfman Josh, and I, none of us, were in that episode. So we <laughs> could legit- legitimately do this without, like, retreading. And I think we can go a little bit different direction with it. So for the people that have heard that episode, Josh, I think we could still do a nice job covering this. What do you think? I'm down. Let's do it. One of my favorite things to discuss, actually. So Okay. Well, I think we should do that um, sooner rather than later. We got um, in January, we got a big, the best horror films of the 1970s. That's a whole decade mm. we're going to be covering. Yep. But how about after that, maybe let's consider doing this um, remakes thing. Yeah, let's get it in. Let's get it into the rotation. I'm absolutely down for that. Okay, so Sean, I hope you don't feel put off right now, but um, what we're telling you is we're going to do an entire episode to answer your question. 
All right, now this next one, this is a comment left from, Mangloid left this comment. I think he left it on episode two. And he said, hey guys, I really enjoyed the show. It's unfortunate that Dr. Walking Dead had to bow out as I found many of his commentaries made me look at some of my favorite horror movies in a completely different light. Here, here, yeah. I totally agree, huh? We were heartbroken, huh, Josh? That's the that's the beauty of Dr. Walking Dead. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But nonetheless, Dr. Shock is a great replacement. His mention of the underrated slasher, My Bloody Valentine, was a film I've actually been anticipating to hear your opinions on. It has recently become one of my favorite slasher films after I had bought it on Blu-ray completely uncut. If you're not aware of the history of this film, it had suffered... Severe cuts due to the clampdown of the MPAA um, during the early 80s on horror films. Now that I've finally seen it in its original cut on Blu-ray, it is easy to see why it suffered under the wrath of the MPAA at the time. Even by today's standards, much of the film's practical effects are quite amazing. I would really love to hear a show with some more time dedicated to a film that I believe is a slasher masterpiece. And and for it, so he's got more, but I wanted to address that. I mean, he, you agree with him on that, right, Jeff? <laughs> oh, I love that film. And in fact, Man, Mangloid, here's what we're gonna do. And um, well, I hope Josh and Dave are okay with this, but our episode, I saw, I saw that. Yeah. Okay, so you're cool. With it. Yeah, our episode really. We actually have an episode that comes out on Friday, February 14th on Valentine's Day, and we're gonna cover the original My Bloody Valentine and the new one in 3D. We're gonna cover both of those just for you in depth on that episode. How's that sound? Awesome. You down with that, Josh? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, brother. Yeah. Cause those are the ultimate. And then he continued, Jay, I, have, I also have a recommendation for your beastly freak segment that you might enjoy that you could easily fall under the guilty pleasures category as well is 1983's the deadly spawn. While most of the movie suffers from bad acting, the creature certainly makes up for its flaws. I can also genuinely say that this is one of the best horror podcasts that I've been fortunate to come across thus far. Keep up the great work. And so I wanted to tell Mangloid, that is going to be, The Deadly Spawn is going to be my very next Beastly Freaks review. <laughs> so nice. So we covered, I covered one for this episode, but in episode four, that's what I'm covering. Thanks to you. So yeah, anybody wants to send us stuff to check out especially for like our segments like yeah i mean since we're not doing you know josh since we're not doing actual recommendations every time you know i'm totally down like if somebody wants to send me a beastly freak and they want to hear my review on it i'll do it (laughs) not me don't do not send me bad monster movies to watch (laughs) i'm 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 happening across them in my life more than i want to already so i'm 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 creating my own queue of bad monster movies for uh for my segment i don't need any more bad recommendations (laughs) well i'll tell you just just so the listeners know uh, how serious i am about what i said is I actually have a, an email set up. It's called, it's beastlyfreaks at gmail.com. So you can email me there. And if you want me to review something, I'll, I'll do it. I'll get on it. Okay. This is an email from Chris Peckover. And his title was, I love this, longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> I like it when people bring that up. So a writer buddy of mine recommended the weekly horror movie podcast to me just before it ended. And I voraciously have been playing catch up ever since. I really like the new show. Y'all have struck a fantastic balance of personality and content. Just great, Chris. So thanks, Chris. It's super nice. 
Thanks, Chris. You know what's cool about what Chris wrote there? Joshua, you only hear feedback from people typically if they're ticked off. Like, think about, like, if you call, when do you ever call a restaurant and be like, oh, my waitress, um, you know, or waiter was <laughs> tremendous, you know, like, you never do that. But if you're ticked I do that all the time, Jason. You're so rude. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying, I think it's cool that when things are going well, you know, people still take the time. So I, I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Okay. Here's and with regard to the doc, Dr. Walking Dead thing. I mean, on one hand, I kind of feel like there's no replacing him. And I don't, I, I think, well, you know, we don't need to think of Dave as a replacement for him because I just think, you know, Kyle brings something that none of us can really do. And, you know, and so it is a loss and it will be awesome again when he comes back. And Dave, what, you know, what he's giving us is just another amazing host. I think he, is one of the greatest horror podcasters out there in his own right. And, you know, is bringing something completely different to the table than Kyle did. So, I mean, that's kind of the way I think about it. I agree with everything you just said. And just so the listeners know, I probably write Kyle like once every two weeks or every three weeks, trying to tempt him onto an episode. (laughs) I I am always bugging that guy. And, And so anyway, don't worry, we'll get him back in as much and as often as we can. So, all right. Now, this this next one comes from Scott Teal. Now, didn't I tell you, Josh, we have a lot of feet. Can you believe this after two episodes? No, it's amazing. Yeah. I know. I just, I, I don't even know how to act. So, Scott Teal is a... a I big, mean, part of it is because of the legacy of great horror podcasting that you've been posting on this, you know, feed for a while now, all the great work you did on the weekly horror movie podcast and horror metropolis at horror palace, all that stuff. So it's, it's thanks to your hard work. Jason. So it didn't come out. It didn't come out of nowhere. <laughs> well, thanks Josh. And we have some really nice people who have actually crossed over from our sister show, movie podcast weekly. And this guy right here, Scott is one of them. And he's kind of chewing me out here. And, and um, I love this. So I'm going to read it. He said, Jason, 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 <laughs> with exclamation points. There are things people say that they will never be able to put out of their mind, but wish with all their heart that they could, such as coming home early from school and walking in to see one or both of your parents naked and or having sex. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's bad. Fortunately, neither of those things ever happened to me, but I will never be able to forget what I heard on episode two of Horror Movie Podcast, and those comments (laughs) will forever taint whatever ratings you may give other films <laughs> now and, and he put laugh out loud here but you know what this is familiar to me josh <laughs> this kind of comments on a horror podcast <laughs> this is what i'm used to i cannot believe you actually gave the 1963 film the haunting a four out of ten <laughs> i knew that was going to come back josh I'd like to weigh in on this subject because I hope your dislike of the film was due to the viewing conditions. Please understand that these are my opinions only. Take them or leave them. You made comments on the past two horror movie podcast shows that made me wonder what the circumstances were when you watched them. In one episode, in episode one, you said that you watched many of your movies on your computer. And in episode two, you said you occasionally tweet or do other things while you watch. Now, let me... Let me just clarify it on that one. Yeah, I watch almost everything on my computer, but I've only tweeted once through that one one review that it was quarantine too. We did a double fe- feature that night with um, our friend Jeff Hammer, 
And, um, and live tweeted it, right? Yeah, we live tweeted like our review as we watched it. Engrave Encounters. And by the way, I have never felt quite right about that. I take this film critic thing very seriously. I'm actually going to revisit both of those films and revisit, you know, make sure my ratings are fair because, yeah, I don't, I couldn't pay attention. And that's just it, Scott. I always pay attention closely when I watch film. Anyway, I just want to say that. So he said, if neither of these circumstances fit when you were watching The Haunting, then just ignore what follows. But in my opinion, there are two ways you can see a movie. You watch or you experience. You cannot watch old movies like The Haunting. You must experience them. And you can watch movies from the 60s and later because of several factors. Newer films are more graphic and can show extreme violence and blood, where older films can only rely on telling a story through plotting and atmosphere. Newer films are in color and, in many cases, high definition, which allows the viewer to watch without devoting their entire attention to the story slash plot, where older films must be watched closely since the story plot builds slowly. Newer films have jump scares and violent, savage attacks where older films were either not allowed to present such graphic details or the technology wasn't where it is today, so the action on screen is much more subtle. I say all that to make my claim that you must experience the older films. If you were watching The Haunting on a computer during the daytime or doing anything other than immersing yourself in the film, I can see where you wouldn't like it, wouldn't enjoy it. Old films like The Haunting should be experienced in the dark, in an atmosphere free of any distraction, and where you have the mindset of involving yourself totally in the film with nothing else on your mind. If you had done that, and you may have, but I don't see how you could have and not gotten more out of it than you would have understood, experienced just how frightening that movie is. <laughs> Josh, you're loving this, aren't you? You and you and Dave Becker. I, I'm, I so far agree with everything you said. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. And he said, I challenge you to watch The Haunting one more time in the dark with your entire attention devoted to what's on screen. In fact, if you do that, I'll donate another $20 to Movie Podcast Weekly as an incentive. <laughs> Whether or not you change your mind and rate it higher, that would be a small price for me to pay to possibly help you understand what a truly great film The Haunting is. He's very passionate about The Haunting, huh, Josh? Yeah, and I agree with everything you're saying. And <laughs> I'm ready to I'm ready to bring my own money to the table as well. So. <laughs> oh my goodness! He said, "I really think you will experience what so many other people, like Doctor Shock and Wolfman Josh and myself, have." What have you got to lose? Give it a shot. If you come out of the challenge and you haven't changed your mind, so be it. But at least you'll have the opportunity to watch the film in the conditions it should be given. Okay. Oh, and there's a little bit like you say. Either way, from here on out, every time you rate a movie, I'll always think back to episode number two and compare that rating with how you rated The Haunting. <laughs> how discouraging. Uh, the, now, Scott is a very nice guy, and so he's he's just kind of giving me a hard time. And that's fine because um, I understand well, let me just answer this. I watched this. It was it was actually rainy outside and very overcast. And the room that I was in was very dimly lit, you guys. So it wasn't pitch black at night or anything like that. But um, it was quiet. My kid was asleep. There were no distractions. So it was really nice. And, and so, you know, I was totally there and paying attention and everything. But see, here's what I want to address with Scott. I've talked before about our demographic, and I think there are two kinds. Now, this is kind of, Josh, tell me if you think this is overgeneralizing, but I think that there are two kinds of horror um, viewers these days, and I think it's the people who 
have a little bit of a shorter attention span. They need more action. They need a little more like, you know, like the stuff that the kids like, quote unquote, versus the people. Yeah, right. Like me. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm saying. And then there are the people who are cool with classic horror. I mean, I think Nosferatu is great. I think it's scary. But like there are people who can still think that like 1931 Dracula is scary. Whereas like I just... But see, I feel like as a critic, I represent the people who can respect those older films, but just don't get the ride out of it. That, that's, I guess that's where I'm coming from. I just feel like I definitely respect it and I acknowledge it. But like for me, when, my, when I rate things, I hoped at least to represent you know, a subset of our listenership who, who is just like, yeah, that's a, that movie just didn't scare me. So... That's kind of where I'm coming from. Does that make sense, Josh? I, mean, I think it's legitimate. I, I mean, and I think there's definitely a place for it, you know, I mean, on this podcast, because it's contrary to the way I think about it. So, I mean, I, I love to hear the opposite point of view. And I think, you know, it's very welcome. And I'm sure you represent a lot of people. Yeah. And I think the thing is, and um, I'm going to try not to be too controversial here, but I think that I'll, I think there are people out there who maybe praise sacred cows because that's what they feel like they have to do is praise. sacred. So now cows. you're now I just, I just gave you the benefit of the doubt and I said <laughs> that what you do is fine. And now you're going to come and say that my love for it is disingenuous. Is how you respond to that? <laughs> no, no, Josh, that was not referring to you at all, but I do. Okay. For example, people I'm sure noticed that John Carpenter's 1978 Halloween was not in my top 10 list. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Like, can I just stop you, Jason? What? <laughs> can I just stop you? Go ahead. I, th- I don't think I don't think this is a good argument to make, and I just want to stop you before you make it, <laughs> because I I think as much as you love to watch the movies you love to watch, there are other people that love different just love different things, and I don't think that that means that they're being disingenuous with their love for the movie, or they're only doing it out of respect. I mean, I, I will say for a movie like The Haunting, I'm not on. Or, or Dracula, for instance, you know, I'm not on the roller coaster ride, as you say, 100%, and I'm terrified watching the movie, but I'm on that ride 60 to 70%. And the rest of my brain, because I am a very, you know, cerebral viewer, not, I'm not tooting my home story, I'm smart, but I just, I watch with my brain a lot. I watch with my head as much as I watch with my heart. And, um, and I'm thinking about things like filmmaking and performance and all that stuff when I'm watching a movie and I'm realizing, wow, like this happened in this year and this movie hadn't come out and this movie hadn't come out. So this had never been done before. This is such a breakthrough or, you know, in this way. And, and I'm appreciating that. And that appreciation is causing me joy. Right. So it's, you may, you may say, well, it's intellectualized. And so it's not as pure of joy, but for me, it is, I'm experiencing it viscerally and I'm excited about that. And, you know, and it may be appreciated in a different way and in a way that you can't relate to, but I don't think it's to say that just because it's, they're not take, enjoying it in the same way that you are, that it's, you know, it's only because they're afraid to knock down a sacred cow. I don't no, think no, that's- no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I think there are some people out there, some critics who would say, who would praise something, you know, saying, claiming to love it when when if they were really on, like if they had just first seen it, because I think in a lot of instances, Josh, and I think it's kind of the case with you and even our friend Scott here, you you experience this at a younger age 
for you it wasn't much younger but you experience and for scott i i really think he probably did see this sometime around 1963 he's a little bit older than we are sure and i think that when you watch movies when you're young i mean we've heard dr walking dead he thinks poltergeist is so scary and it's because when he was little, it freaked him out. And so, yeah, for people who have come up and lived through that, yeah, it's it's scary. But if somebody was born in like 1985 or something, for example, and they watch The Haunting, I just don't think it's going to do it for them. That's all. Well, I don't, I, well, and it depends on if they're, it depends on when in your life you saw it, regardless of how old you are in relation to the movie. Because like, I mean, to, to take an example outside of horror for, for a minute, you know, I saw West Side Story when I was 12 and I and I had already seen a lot of movies at that point, you know, and so it it wasn't, you know, as it wasn't, you know, I could tell it was old, basically. And I judged it a little bit on being old, but I've grown my appreciation for that film has grown over time and I really love it a lot now. My kids, on the other hand, saw it when they were three and five. And so they haven't seen as many. They don't have as much to compare to. They don't even realize that it's old yet. And so they, you know, it was immediately a film that they loved because it was so easy for them to get involved in the story because they didn't have these prejudices they were bringing to the movie. So I, I don't think it's necessarily like people born after a certain year can appreciate this and people before, you know, it just kind of depends on where your head's at when you see it is my, well, is well, my opinion. Or another way of saying it is what age you were when you saw it. Right. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's one major factor, but I don't think it's the only factor. I think, I think there are, you know, like I said, you know, you can be appreciated on in different ways, just kind of depending on what your state of mind is. And also like the context, like Scott says, watching it alone in the dark, maybe a different experience for you, you know? Well, okay. So where I was going with this though, is that I, you know, I'm not saying I, I've never claimed to be like um, completely unbiased critic. Cause that's stupid. You know, your own biases are what you bring to the table as a film critic. Right. But right. I just wanted to say that I'm not, af- I guess I'm not afraid. I'm not, this sounds like I'm trying to brag and impress. Yeah, people are real impressed by this, but, but no, I, I'm not afraid to say, yeah, that classic that everybody loves, you know, I don't necessarily love it. And so, because I feel like that there are younger or, well, maybe I shouldn't say younger, but people with my sensibilities who will feel the same way. And if I were to just go out on a limb and be like, oh yeah, you guys are right. This is classic. Everybody should watch this. I think they'd be disappointed if they took my word for that and they checked it out. I don't think it would be me being like, I think I would be disingenuous as a film critic if I recommended it. Well, you would be if you don't like it. But I mean, for me, like on the same token, I can, I can say that with confidence because I think if they can allow themselves to get into the mindset where, where they see the beauty in it or they see the the value in it then they will get something out of that experience you know mm-hmm. yeah well said and and just to clarify something because you cut me off right at a very dangerous point in that conversation i was Sorry. not about to diss on halloween by any means because i like i said it's it's probably in my top 20 all-time favorite horror movies but uh right. but when we do address our major halloween episode on you know for our halloween 2014 release um, there are some issues that I have with John Carpenter's film. Not huge, but I do have some things that that I point out. And I think a lot of people don't because I think people are afraid to because the Halloween fans are so voracious and, and sincere and genuine. And it's just like, but, you know, I think it's a great film, but I don't think it's a perfect film. And so I'm not afraid to say that, I guess. But I do get a lot, sure. of, a lot of grief for that. That's for sure. 
All right, Josh. Now, the same Scott <laughs> who is giving me <laughs> is giving me a rough time. Um, he also left a nice comment on episode two, and so here's what it said: I listened to both episodes of horror movie podcast and love them both. One haunted house movie you might check out is The Evil from 1978. Have you seen that one, Josh? No, I can't think of what that would be. Evil. Yeah, it's it's called The Evil from 1978, and I'm I'm actually really interested in this now. He said, I saw it in an old movie palace, and there were several scenes that were genuinely scary. I do remember the reveal being a bit cheesy, but all in all, I remember it being a good haunted house movie. I've heard you and your co-host mention embarrassing movies you saw with dates. I took a girl out on a first date in 1972 to see... <laughs> The last house on the left. Oh, man. Oh, I read this comment. <laughs> that would be the worst. He said, how embarrassing that was. Nobody could top that. We saw it at the drive-in, and it was the uncut version. Wow. Oh, man. That's and, not a good first date. Oh, that would be... I, I wonder... I would be interested in hearing what her reaction was to that. Um, he says, your comments about being scared in the dark hit home. I used to watch Shock Theater double feature on Friday nights in what we called a uh, Florida room. When it was over at one in the morning, I'd walk to the kitchen, turn on the light, walk back into the Florida room and turn out that light. <laughs> I'd, I'd walk. I got to confess. I do that same exact thing. I do my, that every night when I'm walking upstairs from downstairs. Like, I, light I on, light off, light on, light off, light on. Light that, off. I do that in my house too. I, I got to embarrassing actually. The more I think, I didn't even think about it though until he said it. It's so natural for me. <laughs> I know, especially since we're like horror guys. It's so funny we do that. But anyway, he said, I walk through the kitchen, turn off the light in the hallway, then back to the kitchen and turn out that light. I did that from one end of the house to the other end because I didn't want to enter any room that was dark. <laughs> He said, I'm, I'm surprised I haven't heard anyone mention the great zombie miniseries, Dead Set. You know that one? No. Zombie miniseries. He's, man, he's, he's bringing up the deep cuts for this one. I know. I love it. I love it. And he said, I'd love to hear Dr. Walking Dead's take on it. I've only watched the first episode, which was really good, but plan to watch the others soon. That's, and then he says, uh, 2008? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how I didn't know about that. But During I, a fictional series of Big Brother, a zombie outbreak occurs, but the housemates are unaware of the impending doom. That's, see, that sounds not good to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like since he wanted Kyle to take a look at it or it's get his feedback. Yeah, and it sounds like maybe there was some you know, under undertones or some kind of commentary to it. It's like literally taking place during an episode of Big Brother, and it's a British thing so it's the okay so it's the uk big brother interesting hmm. okay check it out and then he said my wife grew up in the nazarene church and their belief was people shouldn't go to movies the first movie i ever took her to see was halloween <laughs> she, <laughs> she's seen a few horror movies with me but doesn't really like them that much so i haven't seen many horror films since the late 70s it's safe to say that in my youth i saw every horror sci-fi film ever made before 1976 Thanks for the great podcast. Just wish you'd do four hours every week. <laughs> so that's really nice. So thanks. Well, so far, so far, all the ones we've done with the three of us together have been. So I know, I know. It's, it's over four hours. It's crazy. It's looking that way. The next email comes from Deadbox Mike, and he said, I am really enjoying HMP. You guys are really getting to the heart 
of horror movies and are really having great conversations about each subgenre. I haven't heard anything like this before. Even if you went to just once a month, I would still be content. Please don't, though. Mike. <laughs> it's like, hey, permission. Yay. <laughs> but yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah, we're going to try to keep it bi-weekly. All right. And then finally, our good friend Jeff Hammer. He wrote this epic comment um, that is like very, very long. It's literally, I think it's like four typed pages, Josh. And so I won't read all of it here. Not because we don't love Hammer and his comment, because it's actually a really good comment and he makes a lot of interesting points. But there's a very creepy story that he tells in there that I've heard him tell before on other podcasts and I've got to share it on this one. So I'm thankful that he gave it to us. But before I go into that, because I wanted to give people warning that if you want to turn off your podcast, <laughs> then you have the chance now because it is really scary. <laughs> but um, Hammer said that he's guessing that our demographic is more like 25 to 45 age, you know, rather than 15 to 25. So he that's, might. That's the that's the scary story. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I just I just wanted to throw that. That was the other thing that he left that I wanted to throw in. But right. okay, now now wise guy. Okay, you ready for this? <laughs> yep. I've heard him tell this before, so I know that he had this experience. And Hammer is not the kind of guy that makes stuff up like this. So here here it goes. I hate that I'm sitting in this room by myself. He said, "I have a ghost story that maybe should scare me more than it does." It scared the daylights out of me when it happened, though. When I was in high school, I would have friends stay over on weekends and watch horror movies or whatever, and they would crash on my floor on occasion. Well, one night... Guys, I'm get, Josh, I'm getting chills. <laughs> Hammer. <laughs> he's making me look like a big wuss on this podcast. Okay. I think we already revealed on the Haunted Houses episode that we're, all three of us are total wusses, so it's okay. <laughs> okay, good. He said, well... One night I woke up and saw my friend Brandon sitting in the floor looking at me. I think I said, what, or something, or maybe I just waited for him to speak, and he never did so. He never did, so I laid back down. A little later I woke up, and he had moved over to my computer chair. I thought, what are you doing? It was then that it occurred to me that this was a school night, which meant that I had taken Brandon home. Whatever this was that was looking at me wasn't Brandon. I was terrified, but had the presence of mind to tell myself that it was just a dream. I began working on this theory. I looked at the clock. It was sometime after 4 a.m. I kept looking at the figure, which I had thought was Brandon. It was dark. I had never actually saw Brandon, just a figure, and had assumed it was him. Then I'd look back at the clock. The figure was still there. I rubbed my eyes and sort of shook myself to try and snap out of it. Still there. I did everything I could possibly do to make myself wake up. Each time I looked at the clock, it was no more than one minute later than the previous time. Each time I looked back at the figure, it was still there. Finally, I decided after minutes of this that I must be awake, and yet there the thing sat, looking at me. I decided that I would jump up from bed, open the door, and turn the light back on and look. I was quite nearly scared to death at this point. I finally got up the nerve. I went for it, flipped on the light, and as I flung the door open, the thing was gone. I tell myself I must have been dreaming somehow, but the times line up. It was just minutes after I had initially looked at the clock. I have no explanation for this. <sighs> um, 
<laughs> anyway, um, what do you think of that, Josh? I like it. <laughs> it's creepy. I would freak out if it was me. So uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I would probably, I don't know. I think I would have, it's easy for me to compartmentalize it. Like, well, maybe he just was dreaming or whatever, but I mean, definitely if this happened to me, I don't think I'd be okay. No. Well, here's the thing about this story that really gets to me. I've had that happen before where you, you wake up, like you'll be half asleep and half awake and I'll wake up and, and like, I'll see things, but with my eyes and, and it'll, it'll literally be half a dream. So like, the, the vision of my dream, whatever I'm dreaming about, will be like there in front of me, like a big bug or something. I mean, I've been I've woken up swatting at bugs before. But in this particular one, he rubbed his eyes. I mean, there were so many things that he did to try to ins- yeah, ensure that he right. wasn't dreaming. <laughs> so, um, Hammer, that is as scary as can be. It so. is freaky. It is freaky. Anyway, that's a great story. And um, thanks for sending that in to us. Okay, and then, and then finally, Josh, as we wrap up our segment together tonight, I wanted to see if you wanted to just tell the listeners about the Horror Hall of Fame rules for Horror Movie Podcast. Yeah, so the Horror Hall of Fame is a little idea that we cooked up um, because it seems like on horror podcasts um oftentimes the same movies come up over and over and over again and you know we always talk about the same movies and i think that's okay i think you know we all want our stab at each movie at least once probably but after that i think we want to start pairing them out and you know we we, we were hopefully gonna do a lot of lists and stuff on the show too so i just wanted to come up with a way to just make it so we weren't always talking about the same movies. Now I've been pretty liberal here, Jason, more than I was when we first discussed it because then I wanted to mention this to you. Um, Basically I thought, you know, I didn't want to count our original top 10 lists, the ones that you and I and Kyle did on episode one and that um, Dave did on episode two, because I don't know. I just don't think those count. I, you know, I, I, I think even though we all, talked about a lot of the same movies, Jaws and the shining and Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I didn't want to discount those from future conversation to, you know, at least show up once or twice in a good subgenre discussion. So, but I did want to make sure we weren't going to be talking about them forever. So this is, this is what I did. Um, should I just read what we're going to post on the site? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Horror movie podcast Haunted Hall of Fame is basically a pantheon of great films that we acknowledge as the ultimate cinematic experiences of the horror genre and their respective subgenres. These are classics that, because of their superior quality, tend to show up on lists and podcast discussions time and time again. And so, it is with much respect of both these films and our listeners that we lay them to rest in order to make room for the discussion of other great films. Hopefully, maybe some new ones or undiscovered films or, you know, deep cuts. Um other great films that may otherwise be overshadowed by these behemoths. There are two criteria for entrance into the haunted hall of fame, either of which will result in admission and both are equal are both quite simple. First, a film will be laid to rest if it has appeared on a total of four best of lists. So I chose four because initially I'd said two, but I thought at least one for each host basically. And now it doesn't, we don't each have to use it once. Um, but you know, it could be from one host or multiple hosts. It doesn't matter. I could put the shining on four times and then it would be out 
or all four of us could put it on once and it would be out. But I thought I'd at least leave it open so that if each of us loved the movie, we could at least each mention it one time before it would be knocked out of contention. You know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so that's why I chose four. So the, the, so there's the opportunity for each of us to at least men- mention it once. For instance, Halloween may appear on the list of two hosts for best 70s horror films and on the two more lists as best slashers. At this point, the film would be retired to the Haunted Hall of Fame. Second, a film would be laid to rest once it has appeared as one of the feature reviews on a total of two podcast episodes. And now I move that up from one to two as well. Again, being a little more lenient just because I want to make sure that we get the full merit out of these. Yes, they've been talked about on every other horror movie podcast, but we haven't talked about them together as a group for this podcast. So I at least want to make sure we get to address them once really well, or just, you know, give them their due discussion before we retire them. So again, I moved that up to two. Um, For instance, Nosferatu may be one of the films discussed on an episode focused on silent horror films and may be worth discussing again on an episode exploring the subgenre of animalistic vampires. But it would be out of consideration for any future episodes at that point and join the Haunted Hall of Fame. So the point of the Haunted Hall of Fame being, of course, to avoid the horror podcasting rut of just discussing Jaws and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Dawn of the Dead, and The Shining every single week. And we can then move on to some more interesting picks for in-depth discussion with for us and for the audience. So um, they may – we can continue to mention them in passing, of course. So I might say, you know, obviously Nosferatu would be on this list, but – because it's in the Haunted Hall of Fame, right. it's not going to be on my list. And then we'll go on to discuss in greater depth our list. We're not going to ded- dedicate more time to analysis once they've been laid to rest. I, I love that because, yeah, the, there's always this, you feel this obligation to name a movie, which is right. which is why I love this Haunted Hall of Fame idea that you have, Josh, because like you always feel obligated. Like in a slasher, like you'd feel obligated to name Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But right. but but the thing is if you do that and you only got like three spots, that takes up two of your three and everybody already knows about those films. Right, exactly. So we'll give them their due, you know. Then we'll give them their time in the sun and then we're gonna move on to some different stuff that the listeners will be glad that we're recommending some stuff they haven't heard of, hopefully, or giving some time to a classic, you know, that hasn't been discussed as much, maybe. Right. Or finding brand new films that none of us know about. So basically this list, um, that's what it is. And it will be on the website and we'll continue to add to it as more titles are admitted or laid to rest, as I like to say. Um, <laughs> and we'll, and that will be on horrormoviepodcast.com and you can find it there. And so far, I don't know if any have made it yet. I think if there's one that's close, it's The Shining. So I'm going to review what we've discussed so far. Um, but again, I didn't want to count those initial top 10 lists because I just felt like that was, that would be a little premature maybe to do that. Well, and I would say Josh, that there's only one exception to all of this, all of these rules for the haunted hall of fame. For example, we have in the very inception of this podcast, we talked about, and this has kind of been a goal of mine. It's pretty ambitious, but we want to do an insane, like insanely in-depth review of the entire Halloween franchise. And we've already said a couple of times, that's going to be our special Halloween episode for Halloween of 2014. And we're actually recording, you know, segments of it throughout the year, this year. So it'll be ready. And so yeah. I, th- I think that would be the only exception if we're going to be like, 
a big bonus episode. Yeah. I mean, we're also going to do like a best of the seventies or best of the eighties episodes, in which case I, I can imagine them. I mean, they would have to play out in a, an episode like that, which is focused right. on the very best, but on a normal episode where we're discussing like haunted houses, like we did last time, um, you know, we're just dissecting a subgenre. We're not, I'm not going to bring up the shining every time. Yes. I brought it up as my number one, but I don't want to do that forever. You know, I want to get into some stuff that people haven't thought of necessarily. So, right. Exactly. I'm with you on that. And, um, yeah, I think that's good. And, and thanks for taking the time to write out those rules. It probably sounds really nerdy to people, but we take this, if people can't tell already, we take this very seriously, (laughs) (laughs) like probably too seriously, but we don't care. Um, it's really a lot of fun and we just want to do a good job for you guys, especially since people are listening and contributing to the show. All right. Yeah, so I don't I mean I don't want to say that they're I mean they're not just my rules. So that is my write up. Do you agree with those rules or should we be even more strict? No, no I, I feel good about what you said. I knew you would nail it. That's why I asked you to do it because I knew that you would have a really good feel for this. Because and this was inspired from another podcast that you heard, you know, where they have kind of a pantheon, right? Exactly. Yeah, so that that's very good. Which is the the film spotting podcast. I'll give them credit. Um, Yeah, they have a pantheon and because, you know, and and, and they have a huge pantheon at this point, you know, but they, you know, they'll mention every once in a while. Godfather would be on this list, but it's in the pantheon. So let's move on. And it's good. It's really good because it gives room for a lot more discussion. And I think you were the one that pointed out that this rut happens even more in horror movies. So I was glad to kind of connect those two ideas, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think the, you know, despite how much time we're taking to explain all this right now, <laughs> aside, from, <laughs> aside from that, I think the listeners will really uh, like this and appreciate it as well. And then finally, I just wanted to say something. I'll just throw this out really fast. This is going to sound nuts to people, like really nuts, but I have this thing about the year of release of a film. And Josh will probably, as a filmmaker who's had, <laughs> who, who's had real films out in the world, He'll probably, you know, not really like this that much. <laughs> but, but here's my thing. I think the year of release for a film should be determined by the first date that the film becomes widely available to a U.S. audience. That's essentially how I would like to do it. And, and here's why, Josh, because I realize I know there are film festivals. I know there are like the premiere screenings in New York City or wherever, you know. But the thing yeah. is, when we're doing a podcast, I, I feel like we're, we're doing it for us and we're doing it for the listeners. And and I know for a fact that, that a lot of horror fans, like if people are naming obscure stuff that you can't find or stuff that's not even going to be out for another year, um, you know, people get frustrated by the fact they can't find it. So I like to yeah. kind of acknowledge the release date as the time that people could widely access it, whether it's in a wide theater release, whether it's on DVD or Blu-ray or whether it's on like Netflix or Amazon or Redbox. What do you think about that? I, I totally agree with that, actually. Um, and that and actually comes from a bad experience I've had as a filmmaker where we had a we had a festival release of a film that I made at the end of a year, right? So the film festival takes place at the end of the year. And so, but it didn't even get out to audiences until a year later. And so people are already thinking like, this movie's like two or three years old. Like, I'm not going to watch this now, you know? And so it actually really negative, Im- negatively impacted us that IMDb counts the first festival 
uh, date as the release date, you know, because that was not when people were actually getting a chance to see the movie. Yeah, exactly. Our movie should have been a 2012 movie and it was people considered a 2009 movie. You know, that's like how drastic it was. So, well, and I'll tell you a real life example. Not that yours wasn't, by the way. (laughs) That's my real life, Jason. (laughs) I'm sorry. That is not what I meant. That just affects the food going into my children's mouths, but that's okay. It tells your real life example. I beg your pardon. I'm very, I'm very sorry about that. That I totally misspoke. I'm totally joking. <laughs> but um, no, like as far as in this all important podcasting world, this doesn't have to do with horror. I'm sorry, but last year Zero Dark Thirty came out, but it was in limited release, and so it was in a, a lot of the big critics top ten list, and it was in Oscar consideration. But most of America didn't get to see Zero Dark Thirty until January of 2013. And and that bugged me so bad because it's like, yeah, I mean, that, that would have made my top 10 list. And so this year, as I come up to my top 10 list of just mainstream cinema, um, you know, I'm really bugged by that because like everybody's going to be like, yeah, that was a, a 2012 film. But actually, you know, it wasn't available until now. And, and a horror example of this, you guys, is All the Boys Love Mandy Lane. If you look that up on IMDb, it has a two, 2006 date by it. But actually, this wasn't available widely to us in the United States until this year. So for me on this site, you know, if we have this, if this appears on our site, it's going to say all the boys love Mandy Lane 2013. Right. There there you go. I'm okay with the Mandy Lane. I would maybe argue with you on the Zero Dark Thirty, but yeah, I I take your point and I agree with it for the most part. Okay, very good. Well, I you'll have to you'll have to wait and see what I do on our top ten list for movie podcast weekly, but I've got the Zero Dark Thirty thing figured out, so don't worry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well for for um once again we just want to thank the uh all the listeners and all the people who contributed, whether you emailed us or left a comment on the site. We really appreciate it and I hope that are taking the time to, you know, go over these. I hope you like that, that we read the listener email and I hope that it shows that we value that you're writing to us. And then by the way, Josh, we never even, we failed to mention why Dr. Shock isn't here with us tonight. <laughs> well, did you not, did you not mention that, um, on these, on these, we're cut, we kind of call them hodgepodge episodes. I don't know, like they're Frankenstein episodes. How about that? Yeah. Frankenstein. Um, that we're basically, you know, we only have the time to get together and do a big four hour, 45 minute podcast about once a month, right? Or every other month, even. And yes. so, in between that, bi weekly, we're going to be putting together these Frankenstein episodes that have a lot of solo reviews, some of this kind of discussion, like you're hearing with me and Jason. But yeah, definitely not all three of us, probably. Yeah, and so, you know, long story short, I mean, Dave couldn't make it tonight, and so he is missed, but um, hopefully you'll hear him in some individual segments in this same episode three. Oh, well, then why did you, okay, sorry, I misunderstood what you were asking. Well, I just meant, no, you were exactly right, I just meant for our conversation together, like, you know, why isn't he here? So you're right. Oh, okay. You nailed it. Well, just take it for granted that in the in the Frankenstein episodes, it will always be always be a mishmash. Exactly. In true Frankensteinian fashion here, Josh, we're actually inserting this comment a few days after answering the listener feedback that you were just listening to. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And we responded earlier to a comment from Chris Peckover. 
and uh, he sent that really nice email to us. And it was the one where we were saying that it's really nice when people, when there's no nothing to complain about, but they just take the time to say thanks. Right. Anyway, um, well, I recently realized that this same Chris Peckover is actually the writer and director of Undocumented, which is an indie horror flick from 2010 about a documentary film crew whose subject is a group of illegal immigrants from Mexico. Right. And they're trying to cross the border into the United States. Did you see that movie? No, I remember you covered it on Movie Streamcast, though, and I've been meaning to get around to seeing that. Exactly, yeah. It was episode 15 of Movie Streamcast, and I liked it. I actually told people to queue it up and watch it. So, um, you know, at the time of the release of this episode here, Undocumented is still streaming on Netflix Watch Instantly, so you can check it out. And you can always uh, listen to my review over on Movie Streamcast there at MovieStreamcast.com. Now, Josh, what do you got to tell them? There's actually news about Movie Streamcast. Do you want to tell the listeners that? Oh, well, I recently took over the podcast because you and our dear friend Jeff Hammer were too uh, busy with all your other podcasting endeavors to keep that one going. And Mm -hmm. I just thought it was such a great idea. I wanted to stick with it. And so... Yeah, I I have my first official um, episode last week and episode my my second episode, but episode twenty eight is going to be this week. So and and what kind of things do you cover on Movie Streamcast, Josh? Uh, everything, but it's the the focus is you know things that are streaming online, so people can manage their cues, I guess, as we say. So yeah. I like to uh, just you know do a wide variety of stuff. I don't I don't do too much horror there because. We do horror here, so, right. um, but, uh, you know, but I do, yeah, just kind of like to get a wide variety. I mean, and here's the thing, too. I mean, you you people probably know this already about Josh. I mean, if you really want to hear a, a good a good take on a movie, not just a surfacey take, I mean, Josh really gives films a chance, and that's something I admire. And so we fought about a lot of movies that I didn't give films <laughs> the proper chance, and Josh does. So... If you're a cinephile of any sort, you'll love it. And I am going to actually update. Um, there's a ratings room on Movie Streamcast. When I do get around to seeing a film like Undocumented, I'm going to at least add my score in the ratings room so people can see uh, what I thought of those. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Looking forward to checking that one out. Yeah, you should. And, and everybody should, actually. Yeah, it's streaming on Netflix. And thanks again for writing, Chris. That was actually Chris's directorial debut for a feature-length film, if IMDb is to be believed. So I'll be watching for more from director Chris Peckover. Cool. Okay, well, that just about wraps up episode three of Horror Movie Podcast. We thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. And we love your comments, as you can tell. So get involved in our Horror Movie Podcast community and just keep them coming. You can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can leave a comment in the show notes for this episode. And if you do that, then the other listeners can also interact as well. And we'd love to get that going where everybody's communicating on our comment boards there. If you'd like to be involved in the show a little more directly, even you can call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. And just leave that message. Keep it under a minute or so, and we'll play it on the podcast. You can find all our episodes, including the archives of the weekly horror movie podcast and horror metropolis at our website horrormoviepodcast.com you can subscribe free in iTunes and you can follow us on Twitter at horrormoviecast I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music or our theme song and you can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com 
I'll have a link there in the show notes. And you can find Wolfman Josh on Movie Podcast Weekly and Movie Streamcast. And you could follow Josh on Twitter at Icarus Arts. You can also find Dr. Shock on DVDinfatuation.com and you can hear him on Land of the Creeps, another great horror movie podcast. And all this is going to be linked once again in the show notes for episode three. We'd love to have you leave us a review on iTunes. That's actually the very best way that you can help out our show is to you know, leave a review there and that'll help get the word out for us. So I think that's it for episode three. We thank you for listening and join us again in two weeks for Horror Movie Podcast.